0: Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, Tootie Man and Hour Man, who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC, who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning, Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom, Stranger, District, and, and woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who.
1: And welcome to the 13th episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. Now, folks, what we wanted to do here was basically we put together a love letter, a, a isolation slash quarantine present for David A. Gutierrez. So this is it for you, David. Long distance dedication.
2: I am very excited that this is going to be the first Sunday in 2020 that we're not going to get an angry text from him that we didn't do who's who. It's very,
1: <laughs> really looking forward to it. Uh, won't that be lovely? That will be a, that'll be a nice change. It'll make for very, a very nice change. So how are uh, you doing, buddy?
2: I'm, I'm doing okay. We're holding up all right. Uh, we're literally holding up, and we're all holed away in our in our apartment here. Uh, no, we're, we're doing all right, and we're working from home. We have all the stuff in the dining room and, and whatnot. We've talked about that over on our Meanwhile shows, but... Uh, yeah, this is a uh, this is a crazy crazy world we're living in.
1: Well, I'm just glad that this issue of Who's Who came out before uh, Batman did their Contagion story, because I really didn't want to have to cover that in Who's Who. So. I can't wait until uh, they get to that on Nightcast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so we've got some good news since the last episode. Uh, a couple of cool things. First off, we are now available, uh, this show, on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. So if you're not the world's biggest fan of Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever you want to call it, you can find this via other sources now. So that's pretty great. If you do use those sources, hey. Give us like a, some sort of rating or review on those. That would be awesome. We'd appreciate it. Then, last time we did the Who's That episode. Now, I don't really know the ratio of who listens to just who's who and who may, may listen to Who's That or skips Who's That. If you skipped last issue of Who's That, where we covered – who did we
2: cover, Rob? Uh, who who we did we oh, do? Of course, Ultra. I was thinking about Captain Fear. No, we, we covered Ultra, the multi-alien.
1: I just wanted to hear him say it, folks. Anyway, uh, on that episode, we announced we were doing a contest. Or not a contest, but a poll where we were asking our Patreon subscribers to pick the next episode of Who's That and Who we're going to cover. And congratulations to Dr. Occult. Dr. Occult won the poll with 42% of the votes. Uh, For those of you at home who voted... What is wrong with you people? You were, it was clearly heavily weighted on the hot chick Starfire. You were supposed to vote for her or Balloon Buster. That's who I wanted to win. Like Nightmaster and Don Caballero and Dr. Occult. Those were just a ruse. Uh, just to throw you off, but oh well, I guess uh, Edward Barreto's uh, Dr. Cult's just too beautiful to, to be ignored.
2: I, I was genuinely shocked that not only did he win, but he won by a lot. Yeah, so
1: uh, so we will cover Dr. Cult, but I promise you we will do Starfire and Bloombuster on a future episode because I love those two things uh, so much.
2: Starfire should have campaigned more in the Rust Belt, that's all I got to say.
1: <laughs> and by the way, we're not talking about the Teen Titans Starfire. We're talking about the. the no, no, Starfire. right. The Side other two. T- Dr. Ange is excited, but that's yeah. about it. <laughs> Yep. So um, so we are here to cover Who's Who number 13, which is the bad guy's issue. In fact, it says, wanted DC's deadliest villains across the top. And as I was doing this research, because, you know, Rob, I always say, you know, for more on this character, watch, you know, the Flash TV show or whatever. And one of the things I realized is that, as near as I could tell, I mean, maybe I'm off but, but every single entry in this book, with the exception of two, every single character in here has appeared in a TV show or movie nowadays. <laughs> That's just how far the penetration of DC stuff has gone. It's insane. Every single one of these characters has appeared somewhere. Even the freaking Dark Circle have made appearances in cartoons and stuff. Uh, The only two characters that apparently haven't is the the dual entry for uh, Siphon and Dreadnought. And really, I mean, that's not... Okay, that makes sense. Uh, And then the other one is King Snake. But even (coughs) King Snake has apparently been alluded to on the TV show Gotham. So that's kind of almost there. So that's pretty impressive that's That's amazing,
2: I mean it isn't really now, because there's so much, but it, certainly when this book was published that that would
1: have been unheard of. Right? Shrapnel, for goodness sake has been on television.
3: That's <laughs> insane.
1: Now, um, and, and also, I, I just want to copy something right here in the beginning here. Most of these characters we have covered previously on this show, some of them multiple times in, like, original <clears throat> Who's Who and then updates and all this stuff. So uh, in, in a lot of ways, we're, we may go lighter on the history this time out. I'm not sure. We'll just see. It depends on the character. We're, but we're definitely going to focus on the art because so, I just don't want to go, hey, guys, you know, here's the 15th time we talk about, you know, Joker and the acid and all that. It's like, okay, we get it. We know how the Joker came to be. There's a freaking movie. Anyway, I feel um, like we've been building to the day
2: when the episode of who's who, where the feedback is longer than the main segment. I think maybe <laughs> we're
1: getting there. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Now, also, I just want to remind you guys, uh, it, it, since we did this, uh, you know, just a few months ago, we had the demise of the comic book DB website, which was my primary source for research and history. And that's how I used to do a bunch of gotchas at Rob. i be like, how many appearances do you think this character has made? You know, that's all gone now. So there are other sites out there, and when we get into the beloved feedback, we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, it, it, getting a lot of the details, a little bit harder now than it used to be. But we really need to take a second to thank our sponsors, Rob. So quit, quit all this jibber-jabbering. Let me get to it. Uh folks, this I episode- apologize. This episode of Who's Who is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So what'd you bring, Rob? All right. Well, of course, based on one of the entries
2: uh, in this very issue, I have Justice League of America, The Silver Age trade paperback volume one it reprints justice league of america numbers one through eight mystery and space number 75 and brave and bold 28 and 30 it's the reissue with the new covers by michael cho and it's got this great shot of the justice league and they're all smiling and looking happy and everybody's <laughs> flying it's wonderful and of course it features among other villains starro who appears in this issue uh, yeah it's three hundred twenty-eight pages it's by gardner fox and mike Sikowski. normal price 1999 in stock trades price 11 dollars 59 cents 42 percent off Justice. League goodness, you can't beat it. Justice League of America, Silver Age, Volume One.
1: Now those covers are beautiful. I mean, they yeah. look, and, and I'm I'm always a little hesitant to do this because I don't want to like be rude to an artist by comparing them to another artist, but they all look a little kind of Darwin Cook esque, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, no, they have a yeah, I'm yeah, Michael Cho, Darwin Cook. Uh, Jay bone They have, all have kind of similar
1: styles. There's no doubt about that. So it's definitely intended as a compliment, just so you know. Yeah, his, oh his yeah. Brothers, they're, yeah, they're
2: beautiful. I, lo- I wish you know, th- there are different artists that have like collections. I wish Michael Cho would get one of those of
1: like his DC Comics covers because I they think they're beautiful. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah, okay. So also in keeping in theme with this issue um, of, the, uh, of Who's Who, I picked Marvel Superhero Secret Wars <laughs> um, Activity Book Facsimile Collection Trade Paperback. That's a ridiculously long title. But what this is, and uh, and honestly, I found out in Stock Trades, and I just had to back into a reason because I just wanted to talk about it. Uh, this is a book collecting – not Secret Wars. You've all read that already. It's collecting all the kids' activity books you can buy. Dude, it's no way. I had these things. It's amazing. So here's, how, here's the thread you follow. This is the villain issue, right, of Who's Who? Well, where can you find a whole bunch of Marvel villains in one place? Oh, Secret Wars. Okay. There. I, I made it work. So I'll read the description to you. This is great love marvel's classic secret Wars story but wish it was a little more interactive well this is the book for you discover or rediscover the unbridled joy of being a child in the 80s with this awesome replica collection of tie in coloring books sticker albums and stamp books it's got adventures it's got games it's got puzzles it's got posters it even has stickers and then it says we've replaced the original stamps with stickers in our version no licking required dig out your crayons and indulge in some unadulterated secret wars fun and it collects uh the the Different Secret Wars, they're basically like coloring books. Again, The Crime of the Centuries, Escape from Doom, uh, Secret Spider-Man Shield, Tower of Doom. There's sticker books it's, and stamp books. It's got posters. It's so cool. Oh, my God. Uh, when I saw it on uh, Trace, I just lost my mind because the one, the one that they use for the covers is gorgeous close-up shot of Dr. Doom's face and stuff. I had it growing up. So, again, it sort of fits thematically with villains. You know, We'll go for that. Page count, 160 pages. Uh, colors, it, it says partially in color, so you can color it. Get it, get it. Uh, normally it retails for twenty four ninety nine. You can get it in stock trades for 42% off, so it's only $14.49. I, this thing looks amazing. So anyway. two, thing,
2: two things about this. One, yes. I've never heard of it. Uh, I've literally never heard of this thing. Uh, and two, I would be really upset if Sean and Greg don't cover this on their Secret Wars podcast.
1: They totally should. They totally should. Uh, if, if if you go out to Secret Now, Rob will include the links in our show notes. Go out and click the link to see this book, and once you see the cover, I bet some of you are going to go, oh, my God, I had that. Oh, my gosh. So Because uh, I didn't remember until I saw the cover, and I'm like, whoa. So, anyway, uh, go out to InSoctrades.com and uh, please tell them the Fire & Water Podcast Network sent you. So, we also need to thank... Our Patreon supporters. Uh, Folks, uh, as you know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting, other services, things along those lines, our pandemic, toilet paper, major orders we do. Anyway, so for the past three years, we've absorbed these costs. But uh, we reached out to you guys last year and asked you if you could help us out because the costs were growing considerably. And we launched the Patreon. It's been incredibly successful, and we really appreciate your support. So if you're enjoying this show, really the best way to support it is by visiting our Patreon. What's that link, Rob? Fire uh, – um, excuse me. How do we jump right to Fire and Water? No, it's
2: patreon.com slash fwpodcast.
1: Exactly. And uh, you know, when you go there, you can read up on it. You can maybe vote in some of the polls and consider supporting the Fire and Water podcast. That would be really appreciated. And at certain sponsorship tiers, you actually get mentioned on your favorite Fire and Water shows, just like these folks. Our thanks go to Christopher Lydon, Corey Drew, Damian Wider, Daniel Butnick, David A. Gutierrez, Gord Tolton, Jeremiah Gones-Goldstein,
2: did I say Gones Goldstein? Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. <laughs> both sorry, of, about, both sorry, of thanks, sorry, sorry about that. Michael <laughs> well, Atchison, think... Michael O'Brien, Nathan Archer, Noah Tarnow, Paul Kenzel, and Tom Paneris.
1: Awesome, folks. Remember, go out to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Uh, we really, really appreciate the support. It helps, you, uh, helps us bring these shows to you. So, folks, as we talk about this issue, all about... Bad guys. I want you to go out on the social medias, use our hashtag FW Podcast, and we're going to post some of the images, not all of them, just some of them, on our website. Now, Rob, now you can say that website. <laughs> that is Patreon. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> Fire and Water Fire and Podcast dot com. And uh, and we'll have some of the entries and some of the back. So, okay, I, you know what I haven't said yet, folks. If this is your first time listening to Who's Who podcast, Rob
2: loves this part. Oh, you can hear
1: my eyes rolling. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's, it's, it's that melodical, uh, melodious sigh uh, of his mm. eyeballs. Anyway, so who's who? This version, at least, was a 16 issue miniseries. It is all loose leaf. So that's what we're going to be showing. In fact, you'll even see the uh, punch holes in the side of these images. It's really cool. And it, at the time, it retailed for $4.95, which was unheard of for a comic book, but it was a special printing process and everything, right? you get 24 loose entries uh or entries per issue this one comes in the bonus poster which we're going to talk about very cool focused on the current dc universe at that time rather than sort of the entire history of the dc universe and when you get into these entries the front side is a pinup of the art it's got the logo on the back it's got all the text it's got you know their height weight all that stuff and it's got these great labels these borders uh there's <coughs> different colors i I'm not going to do them all this time, but you got Red for Hero, Black for Villain, and all these other ones. In fact, next issue, Rob, we get another one. I'm so excited. Anyway, (laughs) and uh, remember, in the comments, if you haven't told us how you organize your binders, I love to hear this stuff. I truly – I'm not kidding. I really, really do. So anyway – It's a super fun book. I kind of wish DC would publish something like this nowadays because it's just – it's a fun piece. I love the who's who idea. Now, we've talked a lot about digital options and stuff like that, but the physical tangibility of having these loose leaves is just too wonderful. In fact, if you've missed a couple episodes, I have an extra stack of a whole bunch of these I bought when I was in Arizona with uh, Sean Ross and Dr. G. And we're going to be giving one away this episode, so keep your ears out for that when we get to the feedback, folks. But we should probably get into it, shouldn't we, Rob?
2: Uh, Yeah, that would be great. (laughs)
1: So this is Who's Who in the DC Universe number 13, cover dated October 1991. But if you were in the store with $5, you could go buy it on August 27th, 1991, and you'd get a nickel back. Well, I guess you had to pay the tax. So you probably need to bring a couple extra quarters. But anyway, um, this one, again, one of DC's Deadliest Villains. The cover features the Joker, of course, by Brian Ballin. Now, we'll talk more about that when we get to the entry. But I got a question for you, Rob. Um, We've talked about on recent episodes how the coloring on the cover – is different from the coloring on the actual entry. They actually have a different colorist. Part of it's because they have to solicit so far in advance. And one of the distinct differences between this version here and the one inside the book is the eyes, uh, specifically the eyelids. On this one, the Joker has very blue eyeshadow kind of looking, right? When you get to the entry, it's not like that. It's more just shadows, not literally makeup. So where's your take? Are you more of a fan of the Joker with the very obvious eyeshadow or more just uh, neutral? Hmm, I didn't even you didn't
2: notice, notice it until you've said it. Flip, flip um, between the two if you need to take it. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it now. Uh, I think I prefer the more subtle shading. I don't think oh, I like no. so much of the blue on there.
1: I agree. I'm the same way. And, and you know what brought this to my attention was some of the comments a few months ago where they pointed out uh, – one of the, one of the uh, listener feedback pointed out how there's a disturbing trend in comics, especially in the 90s, where – we were talking about Roxas, uh, where you, you put makeup on a guy – and it's supposed to denote that they're crazy, that they're absolutely a bad guy, and things like that. And that's really, uh, you know, that's kind of offensive to some of the folks in the LGBTQ plus community. And so now I, I think I'm seeing this with different eyes. I, you know, a couple of years ago maybe I would have liked the blue eyeshadow version of the Joker better. I'm not sure, but now I definitely like it where it's a little more subtle.
2: Yeah, it's a trope that has not
1: aged well over. over yeah. Time. Very much so, yeah. Okay. Um, Also, guys, I mentioned there's a poster of this one. It's very exciting. In the bottom right-hand corner, it's this extra free fold-out poster of the Batcave. Woo! So we'll get to that in just a bit. Uh, Getting into it, you know, um, I don't really have any comments. I don't know if you do on the uh, letters page. The only thing worth mentioning again is that we're going to get a new color category next issue, which is the Histories of the DC Universe, which is cool. Uh, Any comments from you before we get going?
2: I do like the kind of angry letter from Alan Dempsey. Oh, where he's, he's like, for instance, I have a very good Who's who question. How are you going to update entries with newly found information? For instance, in an earlier Who's who entry, we see that Gorilla Grodd has no known relatives. But in the Angel in the Ape miniseries, we find that Grodd's grandson is Sam Simeon. Please print my letter and answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! God. He's from Tampa, Florida, so, you know, he's angry. It's we all know surprise. each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, and, but then, and then he ends with later my ex and bros, so he's kind of got uh, a David Gutierrez kind of thing going, yeah, where he's, he's kind of like he's you know he's like really insulting, and then he pulls like a bro thing on you, and you're, and you're like, like, whoa, wait a minute, you know what? what, what the, totally, I'm all over the map, uh, but but nevertheless, I, I I just I just kind of like the the, the sort of really angry tone <laughs> that Alan Dempsey gets. I don't know what it is about Who's Who that really made people kind of like. It's like, just, I guess, I guess it, the, the whole series is, is, is meant to celebrate minutiae. And if you care yes. about the minutiae to this level, then you're that level of an obsessive fan. So I guess that would
1: make sense. I was good. Yeah, it's the encyclopedic nature. You know, yeah. it's, I, yeah. I imagine Encyclopedia Britannica gets angry letters <laughs> all the time. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. All right, first entry is Arkham Asylum. You now, art by Adam Hughes and colored by Tom McGraw. I want to mention that, because, or Tom uh, McCraw, I should say, because uh, I do want to talk about a little bit about the coloring. So the, the the picture is you see in the far background you actually see the Arkham Asylum itself, and in the foreground you see five inmates escaping. You've got Clayface. Uh, I lose track of the numbers. The one who's got the, 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 the jar the jar jam the jam jar on his head. He's number three. Okay. He's got the jar jam on his head, folks. Then the other clay face, which is the girl, which is actually uh Four. I didn't think she was alive, but okay. Then you've got Killer Croc, then you've got Two-Face, and then you've got the Joker. And the Joker's actually dressed in a surgical doctor's outfit, and the Joker's looking right at you and he's actually opening the gates. Now, it is worth mentioning they're all sort of looking up, almost in a JLI kind of pose, but uh that didn't occur to me till this very moment. But anyway, um I have lots of thoughts here, but Rob to start. What do you what do you think of the art on this one?
2: Well, it's Adam Hughes. Uh, We should – I don't know if you said that. It's Adam
1: Hughes. I think I did, but okay.
2: Okay. It's Adam Hughes, and he signs it uh, on the Joker's name tag. It actually says Hughes upside down on the Joker's name tag there, which is – yeah, nice. Um, I think it is a – uh, I think it's a great image. Um, I, I think it, it's uh, I, it's moody and sad, and also crazy. Uh, and this is not an, uh, in any way an insult to Tom McCraw the colors, but it is printed way too dark.
1: Yeah, um, and that's it is why. Just, I, I mean,
2: yeah. it is really and uh, and I don't know whether this was the work of Mr. McCraw, but coloring Arkham like the the the, the topography. The use of Arkham Asylum on this piece is almost criminal. I think it's so bad. I think this image is great, and then the, the, the lettering is just uh, – I, I, I'm stunned of how kind of bad it is. And oh, you mean the logo? The, yeah, where the, 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 the font, the color, and the application of where it is put on the page to me is, is just uh, screamingly terrible in direct inverse proportion to how great the image is by Adam Hughes.
1: When I first started doing any kind of like computer based flyers or whatever for work when I was in college, that's the kind of thing I would do. You know where you, you you sync up the M from Arkham and Asylum, right? And you, right. Yeah, and, and it's that font. That that's what I would have done when I was in in uh, well about this time actually about 1992. Right, 91. right. There you go. Yeah, but uh, it, yeah, it's very disappointing. So the coloring also, as you said, it just it, unfortunately the Asylum itself is so hard to see in the background. Yep, that it it just it, you lose the power. But there are things to love in here. Like I love the the grass, the actual grounds of the of the of, a, of, the
2: stipple effect
1: is really yeah. quite nice, and it blurs up into the building. Yep. So the building and the and the ground sort of blur together, which is really nice. I like that. I think the Joker looks pretty good. Two Face, shockingly years ahead of time, looks a lot like Tommy Lee Jones, which is just weird to me. Hmm. Uh, it is sort of weird that they decided to put two clay faces on here. And, you know, I, I think one could have been enough, and then you put maybe the Scarecrow or somebody else. I, I don't yeah,
2: know. that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, why, yep. like not the Riddler or any.
1: Right, there's like forty million other villains to pick from. And, and Killer Croc is on the front and the back, really. Subdued, like he, he doesn't—he doesn't look very lizard. He just—he looks kind of like he did when his very first appearance, when he was just you know, ripply skin kind of thing. Right, he doesn't look—he right. doesn't look very lizardy to me. Um, let's on, on the back you get a picture of uh, Maxi Zeus, who I didn't realize how short that dude was. and <laughs> and the because jo- they're all up against those little height lines, you know. So it's Maxi Zeus, Joker, Killer Croc, Tweedledee, Tweedledum. Then you get one of the Mad Hatters, Two Face, uh, again Clayface. 72 uh, scarecrow and then Clayface 74 or whatever they all numbers are. I can't, I can't keep track. It's too complicated. So uh, the, the category is green for geography. Now something that jumped out at me and I probably knew this and I probably, if you go back and listen to previous episodes, I probably said this back then too, which was Arkham Asylum didn't appear till 1980.
2: I don't that, that That's not right. It's not? not.
1: Okay. I don't believe that that's right. <laughs> it blew my mind. I'm like, what? So uh, that's crazy so here's some this is one of the ones I do want to talk about the history because I do find it kind of interesting the whole idea is you know, Arkham Asylum as itself was a converted mansion and there's this guy named Dr. Amadeus uh, Arkham and he inherited the, the mansion from his mother after she committed suicide very tragic and he's a psychiatrist and he's treating the serial killer right? and then unfortunately because things go horribly wrong with Arkham Asylum the serial killer kills his wife and child Ooh. and then he goes on and decides to continue to treat the serial killer and he sort of celebrated for that he turns the house into the asylum, right, and then he finally's had enough, and he electrocutes the serial killer to death. And about the same time, this suppressed memory he's got comes forward, and he remembers that his mother didn't commit suicide; he himself murdered his own mother. Ooh, crazy! And then he gets locked up in his own asylum. So he's there for, you know, it, it'll, it's all creepy and sounds like a horror movie, but it is sort of appropriate uh, for Arkham Asylum. Now, I don't know when all that was necessarily revealed because this is published here. Uh, this 1991 who's who is published two years after Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum. So I, I've got it. It's on my shelf. I bought it when it came out. I've, I've got Mr. Morrison to sign it. I just haven't read it in 20 years. so I don't remember if it was revealed there or revealed somewhere else. But it is a really kind of fascinating history. It's really interesting. All right. Two things. First of all, I just looked it up. Uh, Arkham Ark- Asylum first appeared in Batman
2: number two fifty eight, uh, written by Denny O'Neill, and okay. that that's actually I know that's right because Denny. I know nineteen seventy four. Okay. Uh, I know that Denny O'Neill was the creator of Arkham Asylum, so that makes sense there. And then, and then the did- the second thing that I I'm sort of curious about is why they didn't do this on the the, the visually is instead of that god awful logo. Uh, on the page, like mm-hmm. the, the logo for Arkham Sum should have been like the nameplate of the hospital. Oh, like, you know yeah. what I mean? Just like, like what you would see, you've seen it in movies. You've seen it in the cartoon. You've seen it in the comic books. Like, you know, just the plate on the, the name of the hospital, like that would have been a perfect visual to go along with this image. I don't, yeah, I just, I don't, it, it, it's, it's such a Close to being a great piece, and then the, just that one bit just really kind of. I don't want to say it sinks it because the Hughes art is great, and I love the lineup behind on the back page. I love them all yeah. standing there. That's just really fun. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, it's just weird to me that the, the why they chose
1: to go with what they did. Well, for me, it's the font and the coloring. The coloring really, really. Well, I mean everything. I just mean yeah. yeah,
2: the whole thing is just that's that's the one blight on this very nice piece. And again, I love Adam Hughes. Did a great. I did, the artwork is great. I just yeah. love his his. The, the interpretations, I like how Two-Face looks kind of, eh, you know, he's, he's, he's already he's getting out, but he's not that thrilled about it. I like how yeah. sad they all He's, know he's not wearing a jacket. Cold. I
1: don't know if I've ever seen Two-Face without a jacket. What
2: do you mean he's not wearing a jacket?
1: No, he's, he, it's casual work day. He's only got the shirt and tie. Two-Face. What
2: are you talking about? He's got his oh, purple I'm sorry. and orange I'm sorry, the back.
1: On. I'm sorry, the lineup on the back. I'm oh, so in sorry. the back. In the back.
2: I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. It's Friday that it's got yeah. Arkham It's come
1: for him. <laughs> it's like... So, for more on Arkham Asylum, you know, a million places. You can watch, you know, you can watch freaking movies. You know, you can watch cartoons. You can play video games based on this thing. Or more locally, you can listen to the Nightcast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Or our friends have the also have the Overlook Dark Night Podcast over on the Fortress of Bailitude and you know, pretty much anywhere you're interested Did, and I don't know if I mentioned it, this one's written by Mark Wade. All right, we spent a lot of time on that one. We should go to the next one. It is Blackfire uh, by. Art Adams, and now if the last one had any, you know, some criticisms we had about that one, this one is just knocks it out of the freaking park, dude. This one is just stunning all the way around. The coloring's perfect, the line work's perfect, the logo's a bit brilliant. Now, every Art Adams piece, I don't think we've had a miss by Art Adams in this thing, but if, if you don't remember Blackfire, guys, she is the sister of Starfire from the new Teen Titans, from Tamaran. So she is standing there, uh, she's got her leg propped up on, on her own logo, and she's got, you know, of course she's hot and sexy, so she's got really long, sexy, voluptuous legs, She's got giant heels, and she is blasting just above the camera, and she's got this sort of malicious smile on her face. And uh, she's got the overly complex George Perez costume that very few people can handle, but Art Adams can. In the background, you see there's a statue of Starfire because, you know, she's a princess of Tamaran, And Starfire's head has been blown off, which I love. And then in the background, you've got, like, some tech and stuff, and you, got, you see some cool planets, and it's just – it is a beautiful, beautiful piece. I, I'm in love with this. Oh, and the logo. The logo is actually her name, Blackfire, made out of, carved out of stone. So I love this. Yeah, no, I love
2: this piece. Uh, it's typical uh, Art Adams and Adam. Adam It Makes no, no sense, sense. Um, but it's fantastic. It's just it's sexy and gorgeous, and it's proportions that no human could possibly have. That is but true. it doesn't matter because it looks fantastic. And it, it's funny. Um, it, it what makes me wonder about these these listings about what. Did the artist choose to work in the logo or not? Because I love that Art Adams has worked the logo into this piece. And I wonder, was that the choice of any individual artist? Were they given that choice? Or did they? some of them say, no, I don't want to do it or whatever? Um, but, I mean, I, I, this is a beautiful piece. Be- and I, you already mentioned Starfire's uh, head blown off on the
1: statue. That's a great touch. Now, I, I, I got to think, at least with Art Adams, it was his choice. Because remember, he did that New Gods one. Uh, or maybe it was Calabac or whatever, but it was uh, like the logo was carved like a wood totem. Remember? Right, right. That, I mean that. So this is not his first time putting amazing uh, logos in there. But I mean, if somebody knows how to work at who's who's page, it was Art Adams. This is beautiful. And yeah, I, you're right. The anatomy's all screwed up, and he is part of the inspiration which drove the crazy anatomy and image. I mean, he's part yeah. of the problem, guys, because he was so good. But he's able to pull it off. So yeah,
2: she's she's six two. 140 pounds. <laughs> that's that's pretty well, thin, everybody. Well, the
1: way Art Adams draws her, she is that thin. Yeah,
2: no, it's completely, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 that, 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 that height and weight makes sense when you look at the drawing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it does have the created by credit of George Perez and Marv Wolfman. And uh, so it, it it's actually it's written. It, this one's written by Marv Wolfman, by the way, too. It's very, very compelling. It makes for a good read. Like I mentioned this on the Cyborg entry a while ago. Like that was the best Cyborg entry I've ever read. This Blackfire entry is, I mean, it it's still very, a little convoluted, convoluted with history, but it makes for a pretty good read. Not all, not these things don't always. So I was very enjoy. I enjoyed that, and um, it makes her really sound kind of like a fair ruler. I mean, there are bits in there about how she hates her sister, but she makes it sound like she's a you know Tamaran is uh, in, in a better place with her. So it talks about how her and Starfire sisters talks about how the Citadel took over their planet, and they go off to train, and she's in charge of the planet now, and all that kind of stuff. I don't need to go over all of her history. But, you know, it's interesting. Again, here's another example of a character, Rob. She's a TV star now, she's been in Titans. So this character, they, 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 you know, it's just wild how far these characters have come. So now her border is black. I mentioned that Arkham Asylums border was green for geography. I'm pretty sure every other border in this entire book is is black for villain, uh, other than maybe the Batcave. So I don't I don't need to say the border anymore after this point. Uh, her first appearance is the New Teen Titans, the first series number twenty three from September nineteen eighty two. And uh, let's see what else. Um, at this point, New Teen Titans, or actually it was, at this point, it was the New Titans. And this same month they had released Annual number 7, which was an Armageddon 2001 crossover, so I know you love that, Rob. But the oh, interesting thing was, that was an important annual, because in that issue, they introduced the, quote, new Teen Titans. There was a whole new batch of Teen Titans, which DC then immediately had to slam the brakes on, I guess for legal reasons, and they couldn't call them the Teen Titans, much beyond this annual that was published, and had to change the name to the Team Titans. T-E-A-M, Titans. So we'll talk more about that next issue because they actually are featured in the Who's Who. So, again, love this Blackfire entry. Super win. For more on her, you could, you know, again, watch her on TV. You could check out our buddy Tom Panarese, has his pop culture affidavit blog, where he covered a lot of stuff about the Titans. Or you can listen to the Titan Up the Defense podcast. Alright. Next one is Captain Cold. And this is drawn by um, Michael Golden. He does arts and colors. And, um... So he's it, got Captain Nicole. I mean, it's, it's it's what you would expect. He's standing there with his gun. He's blasting people in the background. You've got you know a frozen woman and a cop and a dog and you know, a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And it's a frozen sort of landscape. And um, it's – I think it's a fun piece. It, it doesn't – I don't know. I, there's something about it where it's just like, oh, that's nice. And then I just kind of move on. I don't know. What do you think?
2: Oh, I love it. It's Michael oh, Golden. okay. Good. It's Michael Golden. I mean, just – he gives – I mean, look, again – there's not that much new to say about Captain Cold. I mean, some stuff's happened to him since the last 2 entry. And, of course, as we all know, as you've been talking about, you can see him on multiple television shows <laughs> at this point. Yep. Um, I mean, of course, good Lord, he was part of the challenge of the Super Friends for Pete's. Um <laughs> But, but I, I, love, I, I love the angle. I love that, that Captain Cold is kind of pointing the gun off the frame. I like that the background is askew. And I love the colors. And you mentioned that Golden did the colors. I love the monochromatic background it reminds me of the old who's who's um Mm. i I just love the pose he's done he's doing that great villain (laughs) kind of cackle looking thing i love all that the only thing i don't like he even froze the dog which i really don't like i'm angry at him about that um the only thing i don't like is again the logo the logo is just this boring red typeface like what the heck? Had they, there, there is a Captain Cold logo. It was on the old Who's listing. Well, you could just take that and put it on here.
1: Yeah, you're right. And, you know, you've actually given me a lot more appreciation. I didn't notice the 45-degree angle. That's great. The woman actually in the back, if you really look at the detail, um, first of all, the Drawing someone frozen and putting the right amount of like shine reflectivity is hard, and he's mm-hmm. done it. He's managed it here where you see all the light lens flares, if you will, coming off of her. She's got a shocked look on her face, I and mean, you can see the detail of the clasp on her purse and everything, and yet it's mm-hmm. all still just in single color, and you can see her high heels. So, yeah, it's a, and the cop, you can see he's clearly reaching for his gun. Okay, I'm falling in love with this. I'm liking this. And so, I love uh, the inset, too, on the back, the super
2: close-up where he's got his freeze gun, and he's like, ha, 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 It's great. I, lo- I, I think getting my – I mean, of course, who's not a fan of Michael Golden? But just getting Michael Golden to do kind of what could be considered sort of a boring character, I just think, is a great touch.
1: All right, I'm glad you came to the defense, because I'm, I'm on board with you now. And in the back, you get his mugshot with the police station, you got him running around with a flash, and then you have him with his sister, Golden Glider. Um, one of the interesting things here is his occupation, it says Bounty Hunter. So that was kind of interesting. So apparently at this point, Leonard Snart, you know, he was, he was originally a crook, and he, he develops this special freeze gun, and then, pardon here, I didn't even remember, he exposed the gun to radiation, I guess because the 50s? I don't know. Anyway, okay. uh, but they do talk about his sister, Golden Glider, and um, I do like on here how he's... They, they, he's a crook. He's not evil. You know, he's he's not a bad guy. He's just a crook. And I like that ask up aspect of him. And now again, he's a bounty hunter, so he's kind of on the side of the angels now. And they mentioned like his gun can reach absolute, absolute zero and all that. But again, I don't need to tell you much about Captain Cole. Go watch Legends of Tomorrow for goodness' sake, or or Justice League Unlimited, or any anything that he's been on, as you said. And. Um, First appearance is showcase number eight all the way back to May to June 1957. This entry is written by Mark Wade, And um, at this point, The Flash was on issue number 55. And uh, for me, uh, the most... I was collecting at the time, but the most the most hallmark part of that is that it's six months away from Mark Wade's running, which is really a a landmark run in the Flash's history. All right, up next is Catman. Ah, oh, I love this one. I, I doubt you do, but I love this one. So it is the villain Bat, Batman villain Catman, and he's standing there in his horribly garish yellow and orange costume and oh I should tell you who the artist is shouldn't I it is drawn by David A. Williams and Carl Story and he's, he's you know typical Batman kind of thing because that's he's supposed to be sort of a parallel to Batman he's standing on the top of a building and he's got this sort of like leaping like he's going to leap out and he's got some cats on the ledge around him I don't know why these cats are probably up on the 80th story of this building just hanging on a ledge whatever maybe he put tuna fish cans out there but his costume is, it's really ugly guys it's all yellow legs the chest is, is mostly yellow with orange arms but the He's got this cat face on his chest that's stylized. It's hilarious. It's, it's like eyes and like a, a set of teeth, and his cowl looks a lot like Catwoman's cowl like, or Batman's cowl but with little tiny cat ears. It's, it's really garish, but David H. Williams draws it beautifully, and uh, we'll talk to some more about uh, Norm Brayfogel's vision for this too. But what do you think of the entry?
2: I actually like this a lot. I think it's a very Yay! nice drawing. It's moody. I love all the kitty cats doing their kind of – they're all doing something different, which is very typical of cats. Uh, I think this is <laughs> nice. I mean, look, I always thought this was pretty much a pretty sorry villain. Uh, and when he got a previous listing by Art Adams in the old Who's Who, uh, he. I think that was more like just a historical thing. It was like, well, mm-hmm. he's a Batman villain and we can get Art Adams to do it. But by this point, he had actually sort of – getting more appearances. His costume is different than what he had. His original costume had like a a C logo on his chest. yeah. So, so So he's got a new... He got a new costume. And then, of course... I think it was, who was it, Gail Simone would end up using him in Suicide
1: Squad? No, something? no, well, I was waiting to get there. I didn't think you knew about this, because I know you gave up on comics in 1995. Yeah, uh, she used him first in Villains United, which Villains then United. became Secret Six. Secret Six, that's what yeah. I was thinking. So, and, so,
2: I mean, if anything, he's actually gotten more, he's wrecked up more appearances since
1: this listing
2: well, he's than, than he did yeah. between yeah. the last two. So,
1: And I th- I'm pretty sure this, and I might be wrong here, but I'm, I think this version of the costume was redesigned by Norm Breifogel because he had appeared at this point um, about two years prior in an issue of Detective Comics during the Norm Breifogel run. And that, believe it or not, that was the first Detective Comics uh, as a collector I ever picked up. I saw it on the shelves. It has an amazing striking cover of like a silhouette of Catman and Catwoman, if I remember correctly. Either way, it struck me enough that I picked it up and that's how I became a, a fan of the Grant Brayfogle era of Batman, which started with Catman. So this guy's always held a special place in my heart. And I love the Secret 6 because it's so good. So the, the gist of it is, uh, he's a big game hunter and uh, he lost all his money so he decides to become a costume criminal uh, or he could become a hero or a criminal. He decides to become a criminal because it's more fun and to make money and he wants to hunt Batman because he likes to hunt, right? All of his crimes are cat-oriented crimes and, he's, and, and it, he, like you said, he was a mort. He really was. But then as we went on, they decided to, to do more than he becomes a collector of rare and fierce cats as I said he had that Norm Brayfogle issue which was actually really good that was around 1989 or so he's got powers uh, he's got all it's, it's a lot like Batman he's got a bunch of gimmicks you know he has a, a batarang like thing for cli- you know with claws for climbing and he's got uh, that would be a catarang of- right there you go Got all kinds of gimmicks, so he's supposed to be sort of a cat play on Batman, but as a, a villain. And uh, one of the things is his costume supposedly gives him nine lives, which is really kind of an interesting thing. I, I I just can't say how much enough how much I love this character, and I and I'm not a I'm not a um, what would you call it? Uh, authority on him, certainly. I don't have all the details memorized, but every time I've ever read anything, I absolutely adored him. So he's got a special place in my heart. And David H. Uh, David A. Williams. You know, we talked about him last episode because he did a really great piece there, and he's someone I want to keep my eye on as we keep going through these who's who. Because I've been impressed with all the ones I've seen from him. Really I, nice. I really like the use of zipitone on the he's... inside of his cape. Mm. suggest
2: the shadows. I think that's just a nice. Oh, it's a, a really nice of the white touch. cat, isn't it? Hmm. It's, uh,
1: that shadow is the shadow of the
2: white cat. On, on the right, on the one part, right. On, on And then, then on the other, the right hand side of the image, all the back stuff, like behind his back and behind oh, on see. his. You see, it's there too. It's a, re- it's a really, for a kind of Mort character, it's a very evocative,
1: nice, nice image. image. Yeah. Well, hey, folks, you should check out that. Go seek out that uh, Detective Comics issue by Bray Fogel, uh, around Again, around 1989, 1990. It's probably in DC Universe. You probably read it right there. Anyway, right now, Detective Comics was on issue 636. And, uh, and, and Catman really doesn't have very many appearances through the 80s. It isn't until after this that he starts getting a few more. By the way, I do like the logo here. Again, it's a font, but I think it looks nice at least. Uh, it, it's got yeah. some great shapes to it. Yeah.
2: Well, it's it's a it's a riff on the Catwoman logo, which it makes sense, of course. I also really like on the, the back page on the inside. I like Catman jumping off the building. That's a cool image. Oh, I should have mentioned and, this. I'm sorry. And yeah. I love the way David Williams draws Batman. Mm-hmm. I, I actually really like that he draws the bat symbol as just a little circle. Nobody does that. Everybody else draws Batman with this bat symbol that's like, like practically, practically nipple, nipple to nipple. <laughs> uh, I, I like that he draws it like it's the bat signal itself. I really dig the, his take on Batman. And I... I I, this is, this is another uh, another uh, way of taking a character who's probably not terribly interesting and really giving it some life by handing a, 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 yeah, a really good artist well, to, to the assignment.
1: The assignment. I think part of what he's doing with the Batman is probably – even though the costume is the modern version, I think he's trying to be evocative of what, like the earlier appearances because he goes all the way back to Detective Comics number 311 from January 1963. So, yeah. So I, mean, I think that's supposed to – I mean it looks kind of like what a Batman of the 60s might have looked like. you know. So I'm, I'm digging that. I can't believe he never appeared on the TV show. He seems so silly that he would have fit in perfectly on the TV show. And that he would have premiered right about that time. I mean, 63. So, yeah. So, it's written by Mark Wade. I should have mentioned. And, um, yeah, I guess that's it. So, all right. Oh, uh, if you want more on him, you should check out, again, Villains United, um, Secret Six. Uh, You might even want to listen to the upcoming J.L. May because he might be mentioned in some of that. So, all right up next is the dark circle and boy, they got they, they ran the toner out on this one when they printed it one this one folks there's a lot of black ink on this the thing. well-named dark circle <laughs> so what you've got is basically a bunch of people in dark purple cloaks who you can't see anything on their body because their body's all either black or dark blue, and they have a mask on which is all dark black or blue, and it's got basically a A a circle on it, and they're all standing sort of on a space uh, backscape with a red circle around them, and of course you got the Legion of Superheroes logo. Uh, And this is drawn by Chris Sprouse and Joe Rubinstein. And what do you think?
2: (laughs) Um, Is this the only listing that has uh, as as the the grouping villain organization?
1: Oh, uh, I think we saw it in a previous episode, but uh, okay. but it's still black, so for villain, but they just put organization right. on it. I think we saw it before. But, yeah. Okay, all right. I think
2: yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, the, I, this is one I when always I glazed go. over because it's Legion villains. I'm like, yeah, whatever, I don't care.
1: Well, it's not just Legion villains. It's also a bunch of Legion villains that all look identical with completely yeah. non-script costumes. So I get yeah. it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Now, I like it. I think it's evocative. I think it is dark and spooky and creepy, but it's just so dark that there's not much. Uh, the red circle really stands out, I tell you that mm-hmm. much. But okay so I, I I don't dislike it it just it it's not Amazing. So, anyway, basically what you've got is this secret cult and organization, and they prey on fear and passion and hatred and those kind of things. The, the group is supposed to be older than time, and supposedly, interestingly enough, because again, it's all based on darkness, it supposedly started on a planet of bright light where darkness was worshipped because it was so scarce. That's kind of a neat idea. Well, fast forward to the twenty or thirtieth century, and what you've got is this dark, you know, clandestine organization that's trying to overthrow the United Planets, and of course, the Legion of Superheroes stop them over and over and over, and they've appeared actually on the um, Legion of Superheroes cartoon, believe it or not. So, uh, and, and of course, you can Legion of Superbloggers has lots of stuff on them. Now, this one's written by Tom and Mary Beerbomb, so it's written within an inch of its life. There's text all over this thing. And uh, it says first appearances of Adventure Comics number 367 from April 1968. The inset pictures are you get the five sort of – I don't know if they're founders or whatever. But they're, they're basically, the way it works is the Dark Circle has these five people, and supposedly all the people throughout their organization are clones of those five people, if I remember right. At least that was one version of it. Uh, so you get the five weird-looking aliens. Then you've got a picture of Mon-El and Shadow Last fighting some of them. And then you see a whole bunch of their little foot soldiers or whatever. So um, – yeah, that's um at this point Legion of Superheroes was on issue number twenty three, which I think is the issue you got, Rob, about quiet darkness with Lobo. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. Yeah. So uh
1: anyway, that's uh um, that is the Dark Circle.
0: That's, yeah, it's yeah. exciting.
1: Right, we'll move on. Please. Right, up, up next is Dr. Psycho. So this is an interesting one here, folks. Dr. Psycho it's drawn by Jill Thompson and Jay Geldof, which if you're gonna find two weird artists to pair together, that's two weird artists to pair together. And He looks... If you know Doctor Str- Psycho, he's a little person, and he's got crazy, crazy hair, and it's a cy- he's a psychiatrist, and he wears a suit. So it's a little, uh, so he looks weird to start with. Uh, and here, I mean, this this drawing is just bizarre. It looks like something you would have found in the '80s in an independent comic. You know, you would you would have found something uh, a black and white indie comic, and this would have would have been in there. So it's got him sitting um, in a chair, but he's got a bunch of telephone books underneath him to stack him up because he's tiny. He's got a skull in his lap. Again, he's just wearing a business suit and his frizzled hair, and he's got a pockmarked face with giant eyes. Behind him is, you know, the classic human mind drawing where it shows the brain that's all been, you know, identified with different little sections. On the other side, you've got, uh, it looks like the Ringmaster from Marvel, kind of. And then next to that, you look like you have a, a Mars Attacks kind of alien poster. And he's sitting at his work desk, and he's, uh, he's got a note here about Wonder Woman that I can't quite make out, but something about mythologies. So what do you think of this one?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I, I – I, I, I like Jill Thompson and I like Jay Geldof. I don't know if I like them together, two great tastes or whatever. I don't know. Uh, I'm thrown off by Jill Thompson's like kind of Margaret Keane esque big eyes that she's mm. giving Dr. Psycho. Um, I really preferred um, Stephen Testafano's version and the original husu where he looked devious. Mm. Like he was kind of like twirling his fingers a little and he kind of had this kind of like um, – This evil grin here, he looks very childlike, and I don't know if that's what you're supposed to kind of get across when he's a bad guy. Now, he looks more menacing on the inset um, on, on the back page where he's about to leap off the bed. Uh, there and then, even on the on, on the little driver's license photo, he looks more like. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the, yeah, the main image I just don't I don't I don't exactly know
1: how much it works for me. It's, it's a weird character. He he first appeared all the way back in Wonder Woman number five, all the way back in 1943, guys. So he goes way back, and he didn't really appear all that, if I remember right, because I'm trying to remember my research, but without comic book database, it's kind of hard to do. I don't think he appeared for a long time, and then he came back at different points later. But uh, and then. They, in the post-crisis, they reintroduced him into Warner Woman number 54, so that was May 1991. So the character actually, at this point, in the post-crisis universe, has only been around for about five months. So he has very little history here. In fact, there's giant white space where there's not much text. And because it's so few appearances, this is one of the entries that I hate. It's written by Mark Way, but it's very much, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. So rather than getting a sense for the character, you're just getting a play-by-play of what happened in the issue, which just bores me to tears. Uh, he's, he's horribly evil. He's got these mental powers. And in the story, he caused all these nightmares to happen in Wonder Woman and his friends. And, um, so here, here's where to, here's what I really want to get to. And there's a few people at home right now that are just chomping at the bit because we haven't said anything nice about Dr. Psycho yet. And you're not going to believe this, Rob, but Dr. Psycho, it, it, until a few months ago, I, I couldn't stand this character. Never did anything for me. Now he is one of my favorite characters ever. All because... He appears in the Harlequin cartoon on the new DC Universe app, which I didn't want to watch because I don't even like Harlequin that much. However, I had several people who told me I had to watch. Oh, my gosh, you got to watch it. Oh, my gosh, you got to watch it. I'm like, I don't want to watch this, guys. I don't care. I don't care. You should watch it. I don't care. Finally, one day on the treadmill, I decided to watch it. Oh, my God. I cried laughing so hard. It is is horribly offensive, like beyond horribly offensive. Uh, Don't ever watch it around your family or anyone that's easily offended. But, guys, it is. Gut busting, funny, and the character of Doctor Psycho is voiced by Tony Hale. Um, oh, that's know, interesting. From Arrested Development, yes, yes, uh, from Arrested Development, and he is the most foul mouth, horrible little troll. In fact, in the, early on, I'm not going to say the word, but he gets in trouble, like he's fighting Wonder Woman or something, and he calls her the c word. Which, oh my lord! And that is everyone in the world's reaction. Every single person in the in the show, I think they even bleep it. I don't think you, I don't think you actually hear him say it, but. That is the entire world's reaction to him because he has gone like. No, it doesn't matter what crime he's committed. It doesn't matter what people he may have hurt. It's that he said that word. He is now one of the the most shunned people in Hollywood or in in, in the world. He's fired from from the Injustice League. Everything because he used the, that word, which is sort of funny because that's how it is in our culture too. I mean, that word is horrid. No one uses that word, right? Uh, and so it. it it actually makes it funnier, and it's not not the anyway. You just gotta watch. It. It's the show is hilarious, and Tony Hale. I mean, he is hysterically funny. So uh, Doctor Psycho has uh, gone up way, way up in my estimation based on this cartoon because it's so funny. Does he talk
2: like Buster from Arrested Development as Doctor Psycho? Uh,
1: with a more angry, malicious bent. A wow. Little bit. All yeah.
2: right. Okay. That's
1: a, it's a it's an interesting casting choice. I know. Sure. I uh, y- you've got. Um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, a wash from Firefly. Uh, Alan Tudyk, he plays Clayface uh, hilariously because uh, he's really leaning on the thespian thing. Um, oh, God, there's the King Sharks in it and uh, Ivy. Oh, it's, again, I wanted to hate it. So if you have access to DC Universe, guys, just try and watch a couple episodes of Harley Quinn, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how crazy – there's some deep cuts in there too, buddy. Aquaman's in one of the episodes. Um, Jeez,
2: I had no – okay.
1: Yeah, Aquaman, he has some great appearances. Anyway, Wonder Woman is on issue 59. We're going to be this, – this, this is going to be the longest episode ever, and I thought it was going to be the shortest one. Anyway, uh, Wonder Woman is on issue 59 at this point, so they're right in the middle of War of the Gods, those lucky fellows, uh, at the same time this Who's Who's on the Shelf. So, all right, up next, Eclipso by Keith Giffen and Stephen Mitchell. Again, sucking all the black toner out of the printer in this one, guys. Um, it is, it's Keith Giffen, so you know there's a lot of shadows. And it's Eclipso, and he is leaning up against a building, I guess, and he's got a malicious look on his face. And it's, it's the standard Eclipso costume, like the historical one, done in a very Keith Giffen sort of bent from this period. Um, what do you think of it? Uh, we have already gone over this. I, I, I'm
2: not a fan of Giffen in his, his Munoz year, uh, style. So I like Eclipseo. He's incredibly goofy looking, but uh, yeah, this one doesn't do much for me because I'm just—it's just—it's just to me, it's like it just doesn't. Keith Giffen doesn't do much with this. Yeah,
1: sadly, it doesn't do much for me because it's Keith Giffen trying to do the classic Eclipseo. Now, fast forward one year from this Who's Who, and you're at Eclipse of the Darkness Within which is where Bart Sears completely redesigns Eclipso. And you can see some really cool images by Giffen, if I remember correctly, of Eclipso around that era that look great when he's trying to do that version of Eclipso. But here, this, one just, this one's a miss, unfortunately, for me. Uh, on the backside, though, you get you know, his mugshot, and you get uh, Bruce Gordon, you get the Phantom Stranger, and you get a close-up of the Black Diamond. Uh, I, I don't hate it. It just it doesn't, do, it doesn't excite me. And I love Eclipso, especially the uh, Darkness Within era, so... Uh, The gist of this is, you know, uh, Bruce Gordon goes to a South Pacific island to watch an eclipse. There he's attacked by this crazy shaman who's in the Eclipso outfit. And uh, Bruce is scratched by this black diamond during the eclipse. And now he uncontrollably transforms into Eclipso, this evil, evil entity who's uh, very, very savage. And he's evil and he's got this black diamond and he blasts things with it. Anyway, by this point, uh, or at least some different points in their history, uh, he would transform into Eclipso. Other times Eclipso would, would come out of him and they'd be two separate entities. Um, again, there's not a lot going on with Eclipso at this point. His most recent appearance before this was that Phantom Stranger miniseries, you may remember. And you see Phantom Stranger on the inset there. Yep, exactly. So he hadn't done much since then, uh, and again, one year in the future, you get Eclipse of Darkness Within, so he was the big thing for the whole summer. Um, that's, I mean, that's kind of Eclipso in a nutshell. I, I love the character, um, but this one's not my favorite. For more on him, you could check out DC OCD, where they cover the Eclipse of Darkness within um, uh, uh, event, and they had an incredibly dashing, handsome co-host on that episode. Um, you might want to check it out. Paul Hicks is very handsome. It's true. He wasn't the co-host. He was the host. Damn it. Anyway. Right. Up next uh, now if the last one was kind of a uh this one I love this one. This is the Eradicator. Now, you might be thinking Eradicator from post reign of Superman. Not yet folks. Hold your horses. Superman's still breathing. He's not on the ground yet. This is more the Krypton Man version of Eradicator where he's got uh, the red tunic or the red red bodysuit and a long sort of a, a, uh, kind of a pattern going down it of yellow with kind of haywire little wires in there, but it's, it's broken. It's really hard to describe. This is going on, a, this is going on the gallery page. That's what we're going to do. Anyway, he, he's all in silhouette except for bits of red and bits of yellow, and his hands are full of energy, and he's floating in the air in front of one of John Byrne design, Kryptonian, you know, structures. And the art, by the way, is by Dan Jergens and Bob McCloud. I'm in love with this drawing, so you, you, you tell me what you think here.
2: It's a great design. I love the costume. Uh, it's great art by Dan Jurgens and Bob McLeod, as you mentioned. I love the inset on the back, just as... His little black face. I think that looks really cool. But I, I, And it's not the character's fault, but I can't take it seriously because all I can hear is the uh, kids in the hall sketch with, with Bruce, Bruce McCullough. McCullough playing a guy who is uh, determined to defeat all his co-workers at the squash ball tournament and he calls himself the eradicator and he just he runs around going the
0: eradicator
2: it's, it's one of my favorite kids in the hall sketches and that is all that i hear when i look at this logo wow that's a super deep cut bro
1: <laughs> you're welcome everybody wow okay um well it, it, you know, all respect to kids in the hall. Moving on, uh, I love this version of the Eradicator, like the Krypton Man story, and you see it on the back, Superman in this same costume. The Krypton Man story was really interesting. So, the, what the gist of it is, and you may not know this if you only know the random Superman stuff, the Eradicator was actually a device, was a, was a machine created on Krypton by one of Superman's ancestors, and the idea was it was basically, um, well. It was going to make Krypton great again, I guess is the way to put it. Uh, it was going to bind the Kryptonians to their planet. And uh, it, it went horribly wrong, of course. A bunch of people died. They shoot it into space with this guy named the Cleric who takes care of it. And it continued to observe Krypton and it recorded Krypton's history, this device. So Superman finds this thing in space, and he, he brings the device to Earth, and it decides that it wants to preserve the Kryptonian heritage. So it wants to make Superman into the perfect Krypton man. I ah, see, follow the name. Anyway, so it transforms him into that, this costume you'll see on our gallery page. And he's, he's sort of shedding his human heritage, and he's all focused on Krypton at this point. In fact, this is how the post-crisis Fortress of Solitude gets created by the Eradicator uh, in, I think it was Antarctica? I don't know, Michael Bailey's telling me I'm wrong, probably. Anyway. Um... And And you'll like this bit Rob, uh so of course, you know Superman rejects the Krypton man stuff and he, he he separates himself from it, and then eventually the eradicator gets thrown into the sun and it comes back out in a humanoid form, huh huh? you liking this
2: why 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 am you're I beast so like like the the nuclear man oh oh, oh yeah, okay,
1: great Well it's the same idea. they throw a device in the sun and it comes <laughs> back as an in in a physical form and fights Superman, so of anyway.
2: course yeah, why wouldn't I love it? <laughs>
1: Anyway, so um, you know he fights Superman in that form as well. And then, of course, it's interesting. This is one of the post-crisis characters that have really had a lasting presence. Now, I think if it hadn't been for Raina Superman, he probably wouldn't have. But because he becomes one of the four Supermen and then sticks around, and I don't think joining the Outsiders really helped. But anyway, um, (laughs) it it becomes a big deal. So this is an interesting character to me that uh, hung around. So anyway, uh, at this point, the Krypton Man storyline was a few months ago. And the death of Superman, where he – again, where you'll start down the path of him becoming uh, the, the, one of the Superman, is, is still about a year away. So, you are, so yeah, that's where he is at this point. Now, in the back, as we said, you've got the picture of the device. looks very John Burnesque. esque You've got Superman in the, the red costume, and then you've got Superman fighting the you know, black, shadowy version of the Eradicator. It's really beautiful. I absolutely love it. First appearance is Action Comics, annual number 2, 1989, and this is written by Roger Stern, the beloved Roger Stern, which is great. And if you want more on The Eradicator, you should, should of course, check out the From Crisis to Christ podcast. Or, you know, follow Reign of the Superman. There was a great animated movie that came out not too long ago about Reign of the Superman, which was really nice, really well done. Eradicator! Never liked you. Not even one bit. All right. Up next is The Female Furies by Carl Kessel, and it is beautiful. In fact, we saw this entry, Rob. Uh, the the line work for it, Carl posted on Facebook a couple of years ago, and we were like, oh, wow. And it, it actually, I think that was the first time you got excited about doing the loose leaf. You were like, oh, well, maybe I won't hate the loose leaf as much. So, uh, that is, boy, piece. that was a it wonderful is imitation. Clearly taking of me. place in, uh, what did you say? that was a marvelous imitation of <laughs> No, my imitation of you is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we're, we're, we're clearly on Apocalypse. We're, we're sort of in the, the cityscape of Apocalypse, and the female Furies are battling a bunch of parademons, which I'm, that, I'm a little confused on that, but they're battling a bunch of parademons across the skyline of of Apocalypse. In the background, you can see, you know, um, die for Darkseid uh, on the side of a building. But anyway, you have all your characters. you got Stomp us, She's stomping onto one of the buildings, and it the, the pieces of rubble are falling off and actually form their logo as the rocks fall off to say female Furies, which is brilliant. Really well done. You got Lashina, you know, she's of course lashing up one of them. You've got Bernadette stabbing some of them, and Artemis is shooting them with arrows, and Mad Harriet's, you know, of course, cutting them with her claws. And that's, that's a really nice uh, drawing, and the colors I think kind of kind of work in, a, in sort of a primary color sort of popping way. What do you think?
2: This is the kind of thing I've always wanted Who's Who to do is that it takes characters that I never really cared that much about, mm-hmm. in this case the female Furies, and does a great job with it. This is a wonderful oh. drawing. It's really fun just seeing them all kicking ass at these parademons. Again, the logo incorporated – Into the art, which I think is great. You already mentioned the Die for Dark, dark. like the setting is great. I I love love the blood-red sky of Apocalypse. apocalypse. Um, Um, The the lineup lineup of them all in the back is great. I also also, noticed noticed that um, – although it's just this villain team here, not villain organization. Hmm. So there are making some variations. But I have to say say, I I think think this this is probably the only listing – for the created credit where it says created by and then in parentheses because it says created by Jack Kirby and then in parentheses and others, oh, well, dot, I dot, dot. That. Just, I think it's the only time I've ever seen a Who's Who listing – I mean we'll get to later issues. We're not reading that far ahead,
1: but that's, that's unique that they would actually sort of say, well, yeah, it wasn't just Jack Kirby. Well, because they do distinguish sort of the original female furies, which, again, is Lashina, Matt Harriet, Stompa, Burn and Death, and Artemis. Well, even Artemis came a little bit later, and and those were created by Jack Fury – Jack Fury? Jack Kirby. (laughs) That would be a great uh, character name, Jack Fury. Someone's got to do that now. And then later iterations of the new gods, like into the the 1990s era, you get the the newer additions or the trainees, if you will, the female furies. You get uh, Guillotina, Speed Queen – Bloody Mary, who is strangely really hot and I can't stop staring at, and then uh, Malice, Wunderbar, and Cheshire. So uh, those are, again, those are the sort of the up-and-comers, if you will. I love – and I don't know. I, I guess I never knew this about Bernadette, but she's got this knife, and it's called a Farren knife, like Fahrenheit, but Farron knife. I I like this so much. I wrote it down in my notes. I just love the wordplay on it. I, I I think it's beautiful. So of course they talk about how Granny Goodness trained them and how Big Barter used to be a member of them. And uh, I, I just think it's a it's a fun entry. It's written, the text is written by Mark Wade, and I I love this one. Yeah, it's great. It's a really it's weird. again it's what Who's Who is supposed to do. Yep. And, who's, and the first appearances, as I say, it gives you for every single character, and they range all the way back to 1972 up to 1991, so you can check all that out, of course. And um, if you want more on the Female furies, you can check out, of course, the Kirby cast, uh, Task Force X podcast by Aaron Moss, who, of course, dealt with all the Lashina stuff when she was in Suicide Squad, and uh, I talk about Barda quite often on the JLI podcast, so you can check mm-hmm. all those out. And now, as far as uh, what was going on with the new, the Fema the Furies, the New Gods uh, monthly book actually had just ended the month before this Who's Who came out. All right, up next is Heat Wave, Heat Wave um, by Dan. Wow, that was really bad by Dan Jurgens and Jose Marzan, and it is uh, it's, it's got Roy here. Um, I'm sorry, Rory, it's got Rory and he's, you know, he's clearly climbing his way through a, a blazing building or maybe a blazing forest. He's pushing aside some, some uh, smoldering stuff and he's got his heat gun and he's got his asbestos outfit and he's sort of walking, uh, not, not quite at the camera, but near there. Um, what do you think? I think it's great. Uh, it's very, it's very evocative. I like the the flame effect, effect
2: in the in back. The back right? Right. like uh, uh, the, the like the sort of the stuff that's smoldering there, there. Like the line work. I, it's a great. I mean, this character visually doesn't have a whole lot going on because he's just a guy in a hazmat suit, essentially, uh, with a slight variation on the helmet. But otherwise, I think it's a sharp piece.
1: It looks nice. Um, now, it's interesting as I'm reading the text here. Uh, well, first off, by the way, the name is wrong. It says Rory Calhoun, and you may remember our buddy Diablo Frank um, interviewed Mark Wade a long time ago, and we actually shared it on the show. And Mark Wade actually cops to getting this wrong because he was on autopilot. He says because his name is Mick Rory is what Heat Heatwave's real name is Mick Rory, and any you watch his uh, Legends tomorrow know that because he's an ongoing character there. But he Rory Calhoun is some other character that was in his head, and he just mistyped it. And... Well, Rory, Rory Calhoun is an, was an actor, a real life oh, actor. It was? Okay, yeah. All right. Uh, by the way, on the back, you got the inside pictures. You see um, Mick working on the heat gun. You see him zapping the Flash. You see him gun to gun against um, Captain Cold. Now, I, don't, I haven't read a whole bunch of Silver Age Flash, and I, I was sort of surprised reading this to find out that Heat Wave and Captain Cold were rivals. They yes. weren't friends because, to me, they're like the ultimate bromance in the supervillain community because that's how they got played off in the Flash TV shows and Legends Tomorrow. It mentions that in the Captain Cold listing that he squabbles with Heat Wave. Yeah, so that was kind of surprising. Now, the origin here is pretty straightforward. He gets locked in a freezer and his fear of cold drives him to develop the heat gun and all this. Me too. he eventually, um, stops being a villain. He reforms and he helps people now. He, in fact, he's a consultant to the firefighters. He's designing, um, fire extinguishers, things like that. So it's sort of a little evocative of what happens on Legends Tomorrow, where Mick Roy's a bad guy, but he ends up helping the good guy. So it's sort of echoing there. Um, now, of course, Jeff Johns would develop this in a very different, very darker way. And if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure there were data issues involved in that uh-huh. too. Of course. But anyway, um, it's a five piece. And the, the, the the main image, I think, is perfectly fine. It just—I'm
2: not in love with it, though. I, again, he's visually pretty dull, so I think—I think, I think Jurgens
1: and Marzan do as much as they can with it. Yeah, okay. So his first appearance was in Flash number 140 all the way back in November 1963. Hey, that's the month Doctor Who premiered. Anyway, for more on Heatwave, you should check out Legends of Tomorrow. It's a super fun show. All right, up next is this obscure character that I <laughs> haven't really heard much of before called the Joker. I, I don't know this one very much. By Briefly Ryan had Hull. his own comic in the 70s. That's the only other thing he's known for. That Was that about the same time the claw was on the shelves? Yes, and um, Starfire I- as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think I remember that series. Yeah, yeah good point. Anyway, uh, so you've got the great – now, here's a here's a great logo. Love this Joker logo. If I remember right, that's a – I think that's a Kyle Baker Joker face in there if I remember. I can't promise that. Um, but uh, where did that logo first premiere, I wonder? Oh, well, that was the, that logo was on the comic book from the 70s I
2: just mentioned. So okay. it goes far back at least that
1: far. And actually, I take that back. That may be a Ballen face of the Joker in there. You know what I'm thinking of? I think about? so, yeah. I had a watch. With years ago, back in, I got in like 89. Oh, Ed. I remember that thing. <laughs> My watch, yeah.
2: No, I remember that watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, do you really? Where yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a Joker face like this, mm-hmm, except mm-hmm. it was the Kyle Baker version of Joker. His like with the big giant teeth and everything like that. That's mm-hmm, what I'm thinking mm-hmm. of. Anyway, it's Brian Ballen, guys. So if you're going to get someone to draw the Joker in this era, of course you're going to get Brian Ballen. You know, he he became synonymous with the Joker after doing the Killing Joke. So here, the Joker is extending his hand. He and he actually has a word balloon. Rob loves those. It says "shake," and he's got a poison, or assumably poison tipped. Uh, thing in his hand, reaching out to shake your hand. Now, again, the coloring is different on this one. On the cover, he's clearly wearing, like, blue eyeshadow. Here, it's just some blue shading around his eyes. And he's got, of course, the giant grin and the typical Joker suit. So what, what, do, you, what do you think of this? Uh, this well, thing? I mean, it's a Brian Bolland. I mean, I mean where, 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 geez, geez. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't need, need the word, the word balloon. balloon. Um, that's
2: a minor thing. Uh, you do I don't think it needs that at all, but otherwise it's, it's, of course it's Brian Bond drawing, drawing the Joker. I mean, it's, it's fantastic.
1: My wife has a weird fascination with the Joker character. Now, if you've heard me talk before, guys, she's a norm. She she doesn't care about comic books. She doesn't care about superheroes. She will indulge me and watch some from time to time. But the Joker is a character for some reason that interests her. I think she likes horror movies, too. Anyway, I showed her this one, and she sort of recoiled. Like, Eah. like <laughs> so I, I, I don't think she hated it, but I think it was just scary to her. So um, oh, Mission one, accomplished, then, Brian. Right. <laughs> this one will, of course, be on the gallery. Oh, um, yeah, you know what? The Joker face in the logo is the one on the back image, his little license picture. Just uh, Right redrawn or recolored or something there. Anyway, uh, in the bottom, the, the inset you get him is the red hood. You get uh, sort of a very classic version. It's probably a cover reproduction, I would think, of the Joker holding a woman hostage and shooting at Batman. And then you got him standing over someone with his, you know, the Joker, the rictus grin. I don't need to go into the Bio here, guys. You know the deal. This entry leans really, really heavily into the killing joke version of Joker's origin. I mean, they, they plainly say in here this might be the Joker's origin. It might not. That's fair. Uh, so I, I don't need to go in all that because we've already talked about it. So they do say in here, I, did, I think it's interesting. They talk about how evil the Joker is that even the press has stopped calling him the clown prince of crime because there's nothing clownish about him, you know, like funny about him. Which, that's kind of nice. Uh, of course, they talk about here how he's crippled Barbara Gordon and he's killed Jason Todd, and that's Rob's fault, to be honest. Honest. So um by the way, I found out you and Sean Ross both voted to kill uh Tim uh, Jason Todd. So yeah, you know he's saved Sean. I I knew I liked that guy. You're you're in good company. I mean, I like Sean a lot better than you, but uh still bad bad things, guys. Anyways, written by Mark Wade. Uh, we talked about Brian Ballin, of course, colors by Anthony Tollin. Now, first appearance of Joker lists uh spring nineteen forty Batman number one. There's no current version, nothing like that. They just list the singular version. Um I I don't know. There's a lot to say about the Joker that hasn't been said. I mean, do you have anything you want to share?
2: Yeah, and I don't have much to – he's gotten four great listings. We've covered him four different times. He's been drawn by Marshall Rogers, Kevin McGuire, Kyle Baker, now Brian Bolland. I mean obviously uh, I'm sure that the list of artists who want to draw the Joker Who's Who listing is very long. Yeah. So uh, I mean he's he's gotten his own movie for Pete's sakes. I mean until until eventually DC releases the Penguin movie. That's the only time that's ever going to happen. Well, I guess Venom. I guess Venom counts. He got his own movie. But I mean, yeah, it's the Joker. It's, it's the most famous comic book villain of all time. I don't know what much else there is to
1: say. Yeah, and it's a beautiful piece. It truly is. Yeah. is gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's, great. it's stunning. And I mean, it's not just movies dude. Academy Award winning movies, crazy. So yeah. anyway, check out the Nightcast uh, for more on the Joker, please. And now, as far as Joker's appearances, it's it's been a little while. It's been about a year since he appeared. This was an era in the '90s where they were trying not to overuse the Joker. <laughs> well, no, they were, which was appreciated. Because, I know. Yeah. It just seems very charming now. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. All right, up next is is King Snake, one of our only entries that hasn't made it into other media yet. Uh, art here is by Tom Lyle and Bob Smith Now if you're not familiar with King Snake I would imagine Rob probably isn't Because this is an era of comics that he hated But uh, my nickname in high school, in high school?
0: Oh,
1: right! Okay. So you've got King Snake. Uh, he's this guy. He, he's a martial arts guy. And you see him in the foreground. He doesn't have a shirt on. He's got this giant snake tattoo on his on his chest that says, you know, don't tread on me. Okay, it doesn't say that part. But uh, long blonde hair and a ponytail. And he's got, like, uh, the, the pants of a kung fu outfit on, you know, the white sort of gi thing. And his, his feet are all tied up like he's ready for fight. And his eyes are closed. And there's a reason for that, Rob, is because he's blind. Uh, he, he's a martial arts master, master of every martial arts. And, and yet he's blind. And he's also a weapons and drugs smoker or big, big, big guy in Asia, very popular. Even though he's British, he started in England, moved to Asia. And in the background, you've got his main henchman, who's Lynx, who's in a very colorful red, yellow, and blue outfit. uh, And both of these characters premiered in the Robin miniseries. So the Robin miniseries, when DC was like, you know, we don't really think people want to read about Robin. And so they released Robin 1, which featured these characters. And it was extremely popular. And they're like, I still don't think people want to read about Robin. So they did Robin 2. I still and so this went on for a long time until Robin finally got his own series. But for a long time, King Snake was kind of Robin's bad guy, and the deal was he wanted to move his giant, you know, drug smuggling operation from Hong Kong because they were about to, you know, go to China. They were going to be taken over by China. He wanted to move it to Gotham City. Well, Robin and Lady Shiva stopped him. Uh, and that became a big problem. And, and also, King Snake controls this, like all these street gangs and stuff like this. And, and actually, when this was published, he was actually appearing in the Batman comic at this time. And I want to say Tom Lyle was drawing it, because Tom Lyle kind of became the go to Robin artist for a long time. Uh, so, first appearance here is, of, as I mentioned, Robin number one from 1990. Um, what, any thoughts on this entry? Because is this a character you're even familiar with? Let's start there.
2: No, not at all. I do think it's funny on the powers and weapons that it says, talks about his martial arts. Uh, you know, his skill with martial arts and his disregard for the value of human life. Mm-hmm. And it says, these qualities have earned, have earned him the title of the most dangerous man alive. Like, Oh, stop it. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you're not the most, especially when you're, you're literally came right after the Joker. You're not the most dangerous man alive. Just stop it. And I also like the, the middle inset where it's him in a suit standing in his, he looks like he's hosting his Kingsnake talk show. <laughs> it just looks funny to me. So yeah, I don't, I, you know, I'm just like, okay, all right. Kingsnake.
1: I mean, Hey, Robin needs villains
2: too, so why not?
1: Well, this one's written by Chuck Dixon, and they really did try to play the King Snake as like this major, you know, head of almost a kingpin level sort of guy, but also physically amazingly uh, threatening and things like that. He never really did a lot for me. I like Tom. I like Tom Lyle, and I always thought Lynx was hot, but it just it doesn't do a lot for me. So, but. It's fine. It's not bad. I just mean the villain himself didn't excite me. So anyway, yeah. um, if you want more on him, you should check out Everybody Loves the Drake, the uh, Tim Drake Robin podcast. All right. Up next is Cobra! Which, uh, I love this drawing, Rob. i got to tell you. It's by Jason Pearson and Carl Story. And it's the, it's the villain cobra of the, of the organization, Cobra. And he's just sitting on this snake throne. He's got a giant cobra or something wrapped around him. And he, he's got the green cape and cloth, like loincloth of this outfit. There's just drapes everywhere. It looks like Todd McFarlane stepped in to help out. Uh, There's so much cape here. And I just think it looks stunning. I just think it looks absolutely great. In the background, you've got some of his servants. You've got uh, a woman sitting there behind him. And you've got all these stained glass windows with sort of intricate designs. And you've got the amazing Cobra logo. I'm in love with this piece. What do you think?
2: It's really, really good. I've always liked this character. Uh, He was a villain that had his own series in the 70s. Actually, that's where he debuted uh it strangely doesn't mention creator credits it doesn't mention Jack Kirby and Steve Sherman who are the creators of Cobra well, I didn't know so that. i can, I can okay. never figure out how how these creator credits Get arranged in how they don't. Um, it's sort of funny because there's an issue of Batman and the Outsiders where Batman fights Cobra and he calls Cobra the second most dangerous man he's ever known. So screw you, King Snake. Uh, I like that. that <laughs> well, maybe that, King that, Snake was the first. Yeah, that, <laughs> clearly that's what it is. Um, yeah, Batman, come on, branch out. They're all just all snake characters. Uh, no, it's a great image. I like. You see the Cobra slaves and then he's got the super hot girl behind him. Uh, I mean, I like. You mentioned all the drapery. It's like you imagine when he's walking. It's like like a, it's like a bride. you know, There's this long trail behind him. He's got to hire somebody to just carry all this stuff with him. Yeah, I always dug this character. I thought he was cool. Uh, you even see um, in one of the stained glass windows, like the little cosmic arc thing that he had in his series because that was a whole jet storyline that they had going on. So, Is, is that yeah. the thing in the far right?
1: Yeah, it's the thing in the far right. I, I yeah, yeah. it had to be something. I just didn't know what it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. It's a, it's a great piece. It, it really is nice. I, I really, really, really like this one. Um, and the deal is, you know, he's a world conqueror. He was born as a twin, and uh, and, and in this, this whole cult of Cobra wanted to find this person who, was gonna, who would lead them through the, through the chaos of the Kali Yuga, which is the fourth, you know, the destiny of man and all that stuff. And so he comes in, and he's evil, and his brother, who they've been separated since birth, his brother then ends up battling him. And that's what the Cobra series was, I guess, was uh, the son, the the brother fighting the evil cobra, yeah, and with the help of superheroes and stuff like that. And he bought a, lot, he fought, you know, in, in the insets. You see him fighting Batman. You see him trying to kill him and his brother trying to kill each other. So, um yeah, it's it's super fun. Now he fought. I thought I, I thought there was a picture of Aquaman. I guess I imagined that. I thought he fought Aquaman at some point. He did in an issue of Aquaman. Oh, here it's mentioned. Here you go. Okay, it talks about Aquaman. There we go. Uh, and. um So, interesting to me, they talk about specifically Kali Yuga, they specifically talk about the chaos, and it's 1991, how did they not mention the Lords of Order and Chaos in this thing? I cannot believe the Lords of Order and Chaos didn't play a role in this, if they're talking about all that, but they must have come in there somewhere, because... DC was in love with that concept at that point.
2: I don't, now, I don't the, know if he ever – I don't know if that ever crossed over
1: with Cobra. I'm sure he probably ended up being an agent of chaos or something at some point. Pretty anyway, uh, it's written by Robert Greenberger, and uh, first appearance, as you mentioned, was Cobra Number 1, which is all the way back to 1976. I did look it up. I did wonder if it suffered during the DC implosion, but it looks like this one did not actually get canceled during the DC implosion. It looks like it got canceled before that, I think. so.
2: It did get canceled mid-storyline because they later ran – that story in the five superhero – five-star superhero spectacular comic, it's Batman basically defeats Cobra finally. So they basically they ran the eighth issue of Cobra in that special.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. Well, if you wanted more on him at this point, you could have checked out Suicide Squad about a year ago. You could have found some Cobra stories. He also was appear- had appeared in Captain Adam about the same time. And if you want to hear more about him yourself, you could check out the Task Force, S podca- Task Force X podcast uh, where they cover the Janus Im- uh, Imperative and uh, Cobra was involved in that. So you check that out, folks. Up next is an obituary, which is a really cool idea. It's an obituary for Lex Luthor, because it doesn't even say Lex Luthor. It says, obituary, Luther dead. Now, I guess in the the sub thing, it does say millionaire philanthropist, Lex Luthor. Now, art here is by Eduardo Barreto. Now, this is Lex during his... Overweight period. You know, he was the corporate businessman, and here's the shot of him. You can kind of see the double chin and all that, and he's he's a little wider, and he's got the the gloved hand because he had had to have his hand replaced because of the kryptonite poisoning. Uh, and it's you know, it's a newspaper. So, what do you think of this one?
2: <sighs> it looked great, drawing by Roderporetto. Okay. Great design. I love the idea of it being a an obituary that it's in all it's sort of black, black and, and white. white. But it, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't appeal to me as a who's who thing, just because it feels like. How long did it take for this listing to be rendered invalid? You know what I mean? Like how long into Superman comics was Luthor alive again? So it's like, yeah, it's a listing, but it's a listing that's good for like, what, two months or something? So it all all depends on your point of view of what you want, who's who to be. But uh, graphically, I can't
1: uh, knock it. It's beautiful. Well, it's an interesting time, actually. I I love this idea because you remember uh, an issue – Maybe last issue, the issue before, whatever, we did Lex Core. Lex Core, right. And uh, Lex was dead at that point, too. So Lex actually was dead for a while. And so we, we've had, and this is kind of our second entry about Lex being dead. And it, it covers all of Lex's history. We don't need to do that, guys. We have done this before, uh, where we talk about, you know, he's from Suicide Slum and he's the father of, um, of uh, Perry White's son and all this stuff. And it's got the deceased stamp on it. I'm not going to go into all that. But what I will talk about is this does acknowledge that Lex has an illegitimate son. But it doesn't say anything about the, it. it just acknowledges that the son is mentioned in the will that he exists. Cause this came out about one month before Lex Luthor II was introduced. Which was his son from Australia. He had long flowing red hair. And uh, he had, like, the beard but without the mustache kind of thing. And uh, he was was this big muscle-bound, beautiful Adonis kind of son of Lex's. And then you find out eight months later beyond that that it is actually Lex Luthor that he cloned his body – and had it grown, uh, grew a new body around his brain. So uh, it, it, it's a great, su- it's, it's really super corny. But it's also, a, they really played it up though, in the kind of super corny thing. They, in fact, the, the issue reveals, they, the cover says, they saved Luther's brain. You know, it's just really played up that angle of it. But it made for a really cool storyline where they were able to bring Lex back in, in a new body. And so uh, I can hear Rob's eyes groaning. Probably, am I right? No,
2: it's well. First of all, eyes can't groan. But second of all, that sounds wonderfully ridiculous.
1: So I'm I'm on board with that. That sounds correct. That makes me happy. You made me happy, Rob. uh, The inset pictures, you've got uh, Lois and Lex sort of arguing and Superman's coming in, butting in with his finger going, hey, look, hey, that's my girl. Then you see Lex is holding the kryptonite ring at Superman which is making Superman weak. And then you find Superman examining the wrecked Lex plane, uh, looking for Lex's corpse, is what he's looking for there. And uh, anyway, it was a fun time. It was really interesting. And and again, Lex Jr. or Lex II, for like eight months we kept thinking he would be evil, but they kept showing him being nice. And we're like, well, maybe he's not a bad guy you know whatever and then we found out of course the clone thing which was great so uh nice job by edward arborino so check out uh, more from from crisis to crisis you can hear all about lex luther of course during this era up next is metallo by kurt swan and brett breeding i will start with an apology to chris franklin in mm-hmm. advance chris this thing's terrible i'm so sorry uh it is the robot uh version of metallo looking a little bit like the terminator holding his chest open the green kryptonite and then superman is sort of flinching from the green k the logo is about as boring as you can get the robot is ridiculous looking i hate this piece rob what you got what do you hate the design of metallo or do do you hate hate piece uh check in both columns uh, okay. I don't like this version of Metallo. I, I would much prefer to see the version that came sh- – like, first of all, when I think of Metallo, I always think of, like, the human face that's sort of been torn away and you see the robot underneath. That's mm-hmm. how I always kind of think of Metallo. Or even the pre-Crisis version, uh, which, which was actually a pretty cool costume with the green headpiece and everything. Um, this just sort of robotic body, like, you know, again, am I wrong in thinking that not Metallo usually have, like, skin and you just see some of the robots going?
2: Yeah, I mean this is yeah this is the John Byrne redesign. It is a little on the dull side. Uh, I like him looking a little more humanoid. I don't mind the the image. I mean, you're at least getting across what what he does is that he you know knocks Superman on his ass. Uh, and <laughs> I I like the lighting. I think Brett Breeding's a good anchor for Superman. I like all the dark heavy shadows on Superman there. I think it's it's like a well lit piece. Um, but yeah, it's it's okay. I don't hate it. Uh, I mean, we all know that we've talked about. It. I'm not a huge fan of of Kurtzman generally, but I don't think it's a bad piece. I really, I what I really like is the inset shot of Luthor like sicking Metallo on him. I like mm-hmm. this is, like he's pointing and Metallo has this kind of ah, look on his face. You just I just like Luthor like just pointing over there. Go go kill
1: him. I just like that's just a funny image. I, I guess part of what it is – I mean basically what Metallo looks like is those models you see where they stri- – like they do a, a drawing of a human body where they've stripped away all the flesh and you just see the muscle tone underneath, yeah, you know, like yeah, uh, yeah. The, the kind of renderings. That's what it looks like but done in silver. So I, I guess uh, – th- this is just a period of Metallo that doesn't, doesn't do it for me. I'm sorry. Like M- Metallo uh, shortly after this goes to Underworld Unleashed and then he becomes much more interesting because he has the ability to morph any kind like he can absorb any kind of metal and take it into his body so he can grow huge or or he can shape change almost like a transformer which I'm sure makes him more popular in your eyes right? but he he has the ability to do different stuff and then he really I think at least jumps into his own popularity with Superman the Animated Series like that version of Metallo I think is kind of what's in the public consciousness as Metallo That again where it's human face where it's just halfway ripped away and you see the metal underneath it so this one just looks like a poor man's Terminator for me, and it's written by Roger Stern, who I love, I adore. But this entry is very much like this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and it's just, oh, just uh oh, really frustrating. Now this version of Metallo, now okay, well I will say first appearance all the way back to 1959, guys, Action Comics 252. Current version was in Superman number one, so I mean he was the first issue of Superman in 1987, but he's only been around for about four years here. And if I'm if I read my appearances right. I miss you, comic book database. Anyway, um, it's been about two years since he appeared, uh, and he will appear again soon after this. So, um, yeah, I got nothing else, man.
2: All right, let's go into Mirror Master.
1: All right. So, this is a fun piece. I love this one. It's by Alan Weiss. And it's got Mirror Master, technically the new Mirror Master, but they wear identical costumes, so it's hard to tell. And he's standing there in front of a bunch of funhouse mirrors, and you see four really warped pictures of the Flash, specifically I think the Barry Allen Flash is what we're looking at. And um, the logo's boring, but the, the the four mirrors look great. Mirror Master looks fantastic. I love the, the blacks and the shadowing and the inking on this thing. I I, I like this piece. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I like it a lot. Alan, Alan Weiss is a great artist. He didn't do a lot of superhero work, so it's kind of fun that he did this. Uh, until I read this this... this listing i had no memory that there was even a second mirror master because i mean i I read animal man at the time and so he first appeared in animal man number eight what 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 comic was that Hmm. what comic oh animal man there you go um i I read that comic at the time and so obviously i read this story but i have no memory of it so when i went back and reread this listing i was like there's a second animal mirror master i've completely forgot about that but yes yes there is uh and it it kind of Sort of talks about both, but it's really mostly the, the new guy, even though the, the inset picture is the same Scudder one. But, no, it's a great drawing. It's, it, I really it, – it, it tells you a lot of what you know, need to know about his powers. It gives, shows you his villain, but it also makes him the center of the piece too, which I really like. He's sort kind of standing there like, aha, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a really, really sharp piece.
1: Well, I, and, and I, I I'll take a little bit of issue with what you said as far as it focuses mainly on the new one. I, actually, I say it's it's pretty evenly split. Like, the first set is all about Sam Scudder. The second set's all about, um, how do you say his name? M- McCulloch, I guess is how you say it, the Scottish I think, name?
2: I, I think McCulloch, I
1: think you just said okay. like that. Um, so I really feel like they should have listed both, like, under alias, they should have listed both of them as saying, you know, Sam Scudder. Mirror Master 1, this one, Mirror Master 2. I think they should have done, but they didn't. It's, it, in theory, this is just supposed to be the new guy, but it's really about both. Now, that picture, the inside picture of him, of Scudder, is interesting because, yeah, that's Scudder. But how, doesn't it look a lot like Captain Boomerang, like his, like his hair and his face and everything? It does, yeah. Yeah, so I, I couldn't help but see that. Um, anyway, yeah, they, they talk about um, how he is uh, one of the most respected rogues. It was interesting. Sam Scudder was and he, how he died in crisis. And then again, uh, as far as this new guy, McCullough, we don't – it even says nothing's really known about him at all because all he's really done – if I remember correctly, he had only appeared in Animal Man at this point, And it's a great issue. You should definitely check it out. And uh, it says he's very, very threatening and, and scary more so than Sam Scudder, but he has a nice coat of honor. So the text is written by Mark Wade. Uh, first appearance of the original Mirror Master was all the way back in uh, February March 1959, issue 105, and the new one was Animal Man, Animal Man number eight, which was uh, in February 1989. So, and that was two years ago at this point. And uh, of course, Mirror Master has made his way all over uh, extended media. He's been in the Flash TV show, Justice League Unlimited. Uh, he's all kinds of cartoons, so you can find him out there anywhere. So, um, neat villain, neat villain. All right. Up next, I'm I'm going to try it. I'm going to Oh, you know what? It's phonetic on the back. Hold on. Uh, somewhere. Oh no, I don't see it. Oh, well, somewhere here. It's it's Ah, here we go. Mr. Mix Yes Pitlick. I don't know if I got it right or not. I did my best. And it's drawn by John Bogd Bogdanov and Dennis Yankee and this one is super fun. This is the post-crisis, super cartoony, you know, almost Tex Avery version of Mintsoplek, as I like to call him. And he's standing there in a white background, and he is yanking on Superman's cape, which is great. And he's got a button on that says, where's McGurk? And uh, I think it's adorable.
2: What do you think? I think, it's, I think it's not bad. I wish they had maybe just pushed it a little further, wish they think- have been crazier and weirder. Um, the logo is very boring. It's just a True. Mr. Mix-piddly. Uh I do like that he's doing the thing Jim Croce said not to do, which is pull on Superman's cape. That's a fun thing. <laughs> um, I, I, I think the insets are more the style than – that I, that I would have liked than, than the main image. Like he's just sort of just standing there. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, but I like on the insets he's tiptoeing. You can kind of hear the Warner Brothers music, and he, he's tiptoeing because he's stolen Superman's pants. Right, <laughs> which, um, is which is hilarious. Fun, yeah. And then on the other inset, he's added himself to Mount Rushmore, very, uh, very Phantom Zone villain. And then uh, you see him talk about the Daily Planet editor, where, Daily Planet, where he's the mixes Pillik like, is the editor, and he says it back backwards. So it's like I, I wish they had just maybe pushed it a little further in the in the wacky category of, of the main
1: image. I, I like the front image quite a bit, but I will say that back image that you talked about with the Daily Planet where his name is written backwards, and he's clearly just said it. Yeah, because his loose, hair is all in the like,
2: yeah.
1: It's all in the art, and it's really well done. I mean, that is an expertly laid-out panel. It's absolutely perfect. I love that little panel. It's great. So the text is written by Roger Stern, um, and it's – I lo- for me, I will always hear him from the Superman animated series, uh, the Gilbert God version.
2: Oh, a, ma- a masterpiece of an episode. Oh,
1: it's so good. It's so good. Uh, and they talk about here he's from the fifth dimension. It really was – post-crisis, this really was a nice reimagining – because for me, the pre-crisis version of Mitzvah, like, uh, was pretty annoying, actually. Like, it, it, I, the Super Friends episodes now, as an adult, I love them. I find them charming. But, like, as a kid, he got on my nerves. He was just annoying. But this version, uh, post-crisis, always seemed to be sort of, like, endearingly fun, and weird. And uh, in fact, this one, he, he recently uh, appeared about a year ago before this in the Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. And reading the Lex Luthor entry and the Mixie's Pitilick entry got me to go back and reread those issues. So I started reading them last night. I started rereading the Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. I got uh, three of the five issues done last night. And uh, it's super fun. So, yeah, I, I love this. So uh, you can for more on him, you can check out the From Crisis to Crisis. And he's also appeared on uh, lots of TV shows and stuff, too. Even live action, I want to say, in the Superboy show, I think. Yes, he played by Michael J. Pollard. Really? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Up next, uh, the only other characters to not appear in any sort of extended media. (laughs) And you'll know why in a minute. Uh, Siphon and, like... Get it? Siphon? And Dreadnought. And, and the shtick there is the reason why his name is Siphon is his mental powers. But the, what they do is they make people think that they have siphoned away your superpowers and given them to the Dreadnought guy. Like, they work as a duo. Siphon siphons your powers, Dreadnought gets them. That's not actually what happens. What actually happens is he dampens your powers and the other guy sort of mimics stuff. But um, So the, the drawing here is by Dusty Abel and Brett Breeding and you've got this giant hulking uh, Dreadnought character who's Sort of pinkish, but more white, really, than anything. He's got some metal pieces on to make him look cool in the 90s. Then you've got this little tiny creepy alien who looks sort of like the typical grays who kidnap people, except he's all crazy skinny. Uh, looks like Ethan Van Skyver Druid, and he's, it looks like a, like a frog or something almost.
2: What do you think? Uh, the sole interest I had in this listing was well, it's drawn very, very well mm-hmm. by Abel and Breeding. But my sole interest was that Aquaman appears on one of the inset panels attacking uh, Dreadnought. That was the yeah. only thing I cared about.
1: Yeah, um, I don't have a lot to say on this, guys. I mean, I, I read the comics. They, they were Superman villains in the 90s who were perfectly serviceable. Uh, I just don't have any passion for them whatsoever. So, uh, the entry is written by Roger Stern. You get a whole lot of this happened, then this happened, then this happened, which I just can't stand. He fills the space. Yeah, he does. He fills. He certainly does. For so, characters um, that are
2: two years old, <laughs> they they really, he uses up every inch of the listing.
1: Yeah, so, anyway, um, not much more to say. You know, from, go listen to From Crisis to Crisis. Michael Bailey will probably sing the praises and tell you why they're great. And he will in the comments, I'm sure, as well. That's not a knock, Mike, I promise. All right, up next is Psycho Pirate, with a, an interesting logo, by the way. And uh, art by Chaz Truog, of course, of, well-known for Animal Man. Animal H- Man! <laughs> you're in. You're getting into the game with inks by Murphy Anderson. What a strange team up there! <laughs> so you've got Psycho Pirate, uh, of course, who has his sort of red uh, Harlequin sort of costume with the golden mask and stuff, and he's walking at you. And all around him are these people in jail cells, and each one has a different expression. Like one is clearly angry, one is scared, one is laughing, one is crying. You get all these different emotions going on. And uh, what do you think? It's not bad. Uh, I
2: never was a huge fan of Chaz Chuog. I like the the setting of it, of him walking through the jail, and you see everybody's there's These different emotions. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I thought I was sort of funny that in in the the inside on the listing it mentions the it's crisis, the crisis. Mm-hmm. which I didn't think that like I I didn't remember. I thought that everybody that like that was just erased from everybody's memory or something. Or, or was really, it? Were, or was it just that Cyclops remembered the multiple Earths, and but everybody thought he was crazy, so nobody listened
1: to him. I, I, well, you're 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 right there, and, and I can't remember if it happened. I think it was actually at the end of Crisis. Ooh, gosh, I should remember this. All right, like instant, because I've read this thing so many times, I, but it's all blurring together whether it happened in Crisis or in Animal Man. But he is the only person in the entire universe, singular universe, uh, that remembered the Crisis. But uh, That crazy, happens, happens in, in crisis. crisis. I remember okay, so that. so that does happen yeah. in Crisis. Okay, so when you get to Animal Man, what ha- Graham Morrison was telling this very meta story about comic books, and I don't think, like, I never liked Chaz, well, I shouldn't say that. I didn't love Chaz Truog's art either, but I realized once I got to issue 24, at least my interpretation, and there's people who have probably written theses on this, so forgive me for just talking off the cup. Uh, because the book is so much about comic books, I mean, in the series, um, Animal Man, actually goes and meets Graham Morrison, the man writing his adventures. You know, at one point, Animal Man looks outside of the comic book at you, the reader. It gets very meta. Anyway, I think they used Chaz Trog, who was so cartoony, specifically because it was going to be a comic book about comic books. Anyway, in the comic book, uh, um, Psycho Pirate remembers the crisis. In fact, there's one issue, I think it's on the cover, where – like pouring out of his face are comic book covers, like old Silver Age comic book covers are pouring out of his face. And uh, and so the, the he's the only one who remembers the crisis, and it's like it, – it, that's part of the story, so that's why it gets mentioned here.
2: Hmm. Okay. All right. I I like that. I, I have to say I like that as a detail that there is one character that remembers – the, the the history i think yeah. that's a fun detail but everybody thinks he's crazy i like that a lot
1: and if i got any of that wrong please forgive me I, I it's been a while since i've read it i do have the original issues and i've got the three trades of animal man sitting here right next to my desk i just haven't reread them lately so i can hear frank typing his email right now either that or matt ev so um so anyway technically he should be psycho pirate 2 not psycho pirate 1 because they actually talk about the original psycho, psycho pirate in here uh, and how they shared the jail cell and all that but they don't you don't get any reference to the other Psycho pirate, you know being in existence, I guess, if you will. Uh, it's an interesting mashup, though, between Chaz Truog, who was very cartoony, and Murphy Anderson, who – I never thought of Murphy Anderson as cartoony, but he had more of a classic style. So, so th- I could see why someone would go, "Oh, Truog and Anderson, let's do it. Yeah, I could see why you would want it. It just didn't – the results weren't amazing. So I, do I, don't, like I just though. don't
2: – I don't see a lot of a lot Murphy of. Anderson in this really except for the feathering on like the legs and stuff. That's mm-hmm. kind of – but uh, I really – there's not a lot. I think uh, Chaz Drugs' pencils must have been pretty tight because I just don't see a lot of Murphy Anderson influence here.
1: You should have made the boots pointed. Then you would have seen it. There you go. Yeah. So- Alright, so uh, first appearance, at least of this version of Psycho Pirate, is Showcase number 56, 1965. And uh, the writer here is Mark Wade. And, uh, of course, if you wanted more on him, more recently, you would go to Animal Man! You can find him in all kinds of other media. He's been on Justice League Unlimited, he's been on Batman the Brave and the Bold, uh, there's a version of him on the Flash TV show, just, you know, all kinds of stuff. Up next is a character who we had a debate, like, I don't know, 15 years ago, on how to pronounce his name, and in the comments it kept going for ages. So, Rob, how would you pronounce his name?
2: I would I would say it, Razagul. That's there how they go. say it in Batman Begins. That's to me. That's the you know that's the ultimate. Yes, they've said it in the cartoon. I think they say and then the cartoon that way too is Razagul. So I say Razagul.
1: So we'll just leave it at that because that debate went on for ages, guys. Uh, he is sitting here on um, kind of a throne of bone.
2: Really, <laughs> he's, he's he's showing Cobra how it's done when it comes to
1: thrones. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Cuz Cause the, cuz cause the throne itself looks like the, sort of the skull of a demon. Hmm. Think about that. And mm-hmm. then it, the the throne is being held up by these other statues of or maybe they're maybe they're actually alive. I don't know. But they're slaves of some sort of actually holding his throne up. And he's got a giant brandy sniffer and I can't figure out is that supposed to be a lens flare or is it on fire? I don't know which.
2: Uh yeah, hmm that's I I think it's supposed
1: to be a lens well
2: f- you know what I don't I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a tequila sunrise. I have no idea. Anyway, uh, you all know the character. I don't need to go into the details, guys. You know, megalomaniac, uses the Lazarus pit, that kind of thing. The interesting thing is, you know, he was big, big, big in the 70s. You know, he was the James Bond villain for Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams' Batman run, right? But... Through a lot of the 1980s, he didn't really appear that much. He kind of, you know, he had his peak in the 70s, and kind of, I mean, he, he was around some. Uh, you had, by this point, you had, had Son of the Demon in 1987, you had, had Bride of the Demon in 1990, but Birth of the Demon hadn't come out yet, so they were still sort of working through those, those big story arcs. And, and it is sort of surprising there's no created by credit here. I, no, there isn't. No. It does, But I guess it's it was work for hire at that point. It wasn't like it was their own series. They were just writing Batman. But it, it seems like because Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams have such a stamp on that character, you feel like they should have the creator credit. Uh, we should have mentioned it was drawn by Brian Stelfreeze. I'm sorry. I didn't mention that. Uh,
2: there's a lot of complications with people getting creator credits when they were on staff. And Denny mm. O'Neill was on staff at DC at the time. So that's, oh? kind, of, that's kind of, that's part of why Mort Weinzinger doesn't get a credit for Aquaman because he was like a staffer. Gotcha. Uh, and there's all sorts of complications there. But yes, I mean, it, everyone knows he's created Cre- by Denny O'Neill
1: and Neil Adams for six. In the inset pictures, you've got you know, his driver's license photo, which is nice and creepy. And if you told me that was drawn by Barry Windsor Smith, I would have believed you. Then in the insets, you've got him like he's coming out of the Lazarus pit. You've got him swinging at Batman. And actually, that's a really nice shot of him and Batman swinging at each other. And then you've got him in the Batcave confronting Bruce with his cowl off with his daughter, Talia. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice piece. It makes no mention of
2: his grandchild via Batman, uh, but of course, that story is pretty much wiped out of continuity, uh, at least at the time.
1: Well, I mean, I I guess you weren't listening to me like three minutes ago. That's fine. I mean, I won't take it personal or anything. But the uh, I, I just mentioned Son of the Demon, right. Bride of the Demon, and Birth of the Demon wasn't the child born in Birth of the Demon? No, it was Son of the Demon. Oh, it's he was born first, in Son
2: the, of the Demon. Yeah, it's the graphic novel. Oh, see, I've never read any of them. So. Yeah, no, it's a, that. That's how that graphic novel ends. Is that he? The, the child is born, uh, and that's. I mean. That was the, – and then DC was like, oh, no, 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 no. We didn't do that. So they, it's just – they could have thrown it in as a little gag, but they didn't. Well, isn't that child Damien now? Well, now, yes. Yeah, okay. But I'm saying so they took a- it out.
1: they took it out of continuity and then put it back in. I got you. All yes, right. basically. yeah, See, I thought it was in Birth of the Demon. Based on the name Birth of the Demon, I just assumed that's where it was. But I got I,
2: the, the Whatever that first – I can never keep – Sun, so, Bride so of, the the first one. Ghost of, whatever all those Frankenstein movies were, whatever the first graphic <laughs> novel was.
1: It. I remember it ends with the birth of the baby. It's actually called "Son of the Demon Electric Boogaloo." Exactly. There you go. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the official title. If you look in the Indy show. Anyway, first appearance: Batman two thirty two from June nineteen seventy one. So, and Mark Wade wrote the entry. Now, of course, you know you want to go to Nightcat or uh, Nightcast uh, podcast. Overlook Dark Knight. You can watch the Batman Begins movie. You can watch the Arrow TV show. You can see this guy everywhere. Yeah, I mean, he's everywhere. He's he's pretty big. I mean, again, another great actor too. I mean, you know, um, Liam Neeson. So, very well, mm-hmm. nice. Sorry, spoilers. All right, up next is the reverse Flash... Uh, and this is drawn by Steve Lytle, and this is a really nice piece. You've got the logo in the top left corner. On the right-hand side, you've got uh, reverse flash running at the camera uh, in sort of a freeze frame, and then I'm going to steal Rob Sunder because I know exactly what he's going to say next, it, the, is that the back is a surprint, uh, which is nice. It is, it is kind of like that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess it's not. It's technically monochromatic because it's all black, white, and, and this one shade of blue. So you see a close-up of his face in the background, and then you see like the, the ghostly shreds of his costume Because he's dead now, sort of being flowing in the wind above his grave where it says RIP. And uh, I, I think this piece looks great. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it's really sharp. I wish the reverse Flash logo was a logo. It's not. It's just the Flash logo, and then they just wrote reverse on top of it. Uh, Uh, I mean, uh, I like that Steve Lytle put his signature behind one of the floating gloves. That's a nice little touch. Yeah, Uh, yeah, no, I think this is a very handsome image. He makes Reverse Flash look mean and nasty. And then, you know, on that inset, we see him pawing at iris which is disturbing (sighs) knowing what happens and you know it says he says he's deceased and stuff so yeah he looks as menacing as he should be coming across
1: that's that that image with iris is very disturbing so yeah makes me want to kill the guy so yeah Um, because that is what happened guys if you don't know barry allen um you know what happens is reverse flash becomes obsessed with barry allen he's from the he's from the far future he's from the 25th century which by the way i'm curious if they've ever tried to connect booster gold and Reverse Flash since they're both from the 25th century. Um, but that, that is sort of like saying, I know a guy who lives in England, and I know another guy that lives in England, so they must know each other. <laughs> anyway, um, which some of the people listening to this podcast you know, would, would qualify for that. Anyway, uh, so he, he gets obsessed with Barry. He actually gets an old Barry costume. And sucks the speed energy out of it and gains speed powers himself. There's a lot more to it, but I'm just making a shortcut version here. He comes back in time. He eventually becomes obsessed with Iris, like, like you said. And um, he, he, he ends up murdering Iris on their wedding day, if I remember right, right? No, no, they've been married. No, no, he murders Iris later. It's Fiona he tries to murder on wedding day. That's right. Okay, and then Barry has just had enough of his crap, and he chases him. And as he's grabbing him, uh, you get kind of a Gwen Stacy neck snap moment, and uh, he accidentally breaks uh, Reverse Flash's neck, and that's how he dies. And that was the end of the Reverse Flash at this point. And uh, so he, he's been dead. But the interesting thing is you know, Mark Wade takes over the Flash book in six months, and he's going to use the Reverse Flash very cleverly. I don't want to say how, but he does point out that Reverse Flash is a time traveler. So you don't have to always meet in the same order. So they're going to meet a Reverse Flash from a period before he died, and uh, it made for a hell of a good series. So, um, yeah. So uh, written uh, the entry here is of course written by Mark Wade. First appearance is the Flash, 9, uh, 139 from September 1963. And if you want more in the Flash, just watch the TV series. He's in there like every episode. Uh, up next is Shrapnel. Now, okay, I hear I hear you snickering. Okay, but for me, I kind of love this, like kind of a lot. Uh, it, it's drama. Eric Larson. Yeah, okay. I want to make sure. I knew Eric Larson created it. I just want to make sure he drew it. It's drama. Eric Larson, and you've got shrapnel. He's standing there. He's just made up of chunks of metal that are being held together by force of will, basically, into a, to a humanoid kind of body. With this creepy, maniacal smile, with giant teeth and beady eyes, the wall has shrapnel written in blood, and he's standing on a mountain of bodies. I mean, it's super 90s. But I love it for what it is. What do, you, what do you think of this?
2: It's a nice piece. I mean, I, you know the, the character itself doesn't do much for me. It's just very 90s, you know, shrapnel is that kind yep. of thing. It sounds like a band, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. I do appreciate the gag credit uh, because, of course, his alter ego, it just says Mark, last name unrevealed. And then when you look who wrote the listing, it says Mark, last name unrevealed, which right. I was a nice little touch. I like that instead of him smashing that guy's head, like that's pretty,
1: pretty brutal. I love I love the driver's license photo because he's like squinting. One of yeah, his eyes uh, squinting. Yeah. he looks like Popeye. He's like a metal Popeye. Like Eric Larson is an artist. You you kind of either love or hate, and and I'm kind of in the love category because the guy is just bursting with creativity. Like if you look at what he did with the Savage Dragon universe, even and and I don't read any of them guys, but you just look at the volumes and volumes of characters he creates. He's always spitting out new ideas and new characters and just builds upon it. The guys, the guys got amazing creativity and. Shrapnel, and maybe I'm wrong, but for me, shrapnel is unlike any other character I could remember at this point. Now, there's a whole bunch after this like him, but I don't remember a character like with his power, his unique powers. He explodes, and bits of his body fly out and cut up people. It's a little creepy uh, that uh, – Hence the then, name. <laughs> right. It's a little creepy that he then subsists off the blood of other people. That's how he, he feeds. It's a little weird. But I just love the idea that he explodes and has to bring himself back together. I, I, to me, way back in – what is it? 1988 or whatever when he first showed up? That was pretty darn creative. I thought that was really <laughs> fascinating. And uh, I thought it was unique. Anyway, uh, his origin is, is – there's not much here because at this point he really had only appeared in Doom Patrol. So there's really very little known about him at all. And so you had a very short portion of uh, Lang, uh, a text written by, as you said, Mark Last name unrevealed. Uh, First appearance is Doom Patrol number seven, so this is the Copperbird version uh, from 1988. And it actually had been about two or three years since he appeared. And I, as far as I'm concerned, he was poised to be a bit of a breakout star in the '90s. He made a lot of appearances for quite a while. He kind of became a big name. In fact, he even appeared uh, on Batman: The Brave and the Bull cartoon. He he got name checked in the Arrow series. I mean, there was a character who actually had his name Mark, and his his field name was Shrapnel, but he wasn't. He didn't have the powers or anything. He, I think he did explosives, maybe. But uh, of course, you can also listen to Waiting for Doom for more information on him. Uh, and you get a created by credit, and the credit is. Eric Larson, not the writer. He's credited to the artist, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I wonder how that how that came about. Well, he probably brought the character to them and said, "Hey, I want to do this guy." Sort of like, you know, Rob Liefeld claims that he created Cable rather than Louis Simonson who was writing the book. Hmm, all right. So. All right, up next is Starro the Conqueror. So you've got this. Uh, it's drawn by Jim Aparo. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, a little known artist. Uh, in the background, you see a uh, giant version of Starro. Which the more I look at it, it looks like he's on a diet. He's kind of skinny. Uh, and then in the foreground, you have the Justice League International members, or Justice League Europe. Well, it's, it's international. You get you get Flash. Elongated Man and Power Girl from Europe, but also March Manners in the background. And they've all got the sucker faces, you know, the Starro sucker faces on their face. And they're all like, ah, struggling. So uh, what do you think of this one, buddy? Oh, OK. Never <laughs> mind. It's Jim Aparo. You love it. Uh, give me more than that.
2: Well, OK. Uh, I mean, look, I love Starro. He's one of my favorite uh, JLA villains. And you know I love Jim Aparo. But I I do wonder why when Jim Aparo was kind of heading during the final couple years of his career – like why you haven't given to Starro like, why you know, like why not give him like Batman or the Phantom Stranger or Aquaman or it just, this, this seems like a weird choice to give Jim a a character that he has no connection to. Uh, I mean, it's a nice piece,
1: but it just, it just seems like a weird choice. Yeah. But you get an Aquaman on the back punching Starro. I mean, that's that is right true. There. That is nice. In fact, I didn't from, from the front side, if, I, I can't tell you that's Jim Aparo drawing from the front. I can't. Really?
2: You can't look at the the flash face Mm-mm. and see it? No, covered Paro by the Starro. Yeah, but his teeth gritted. I mean, no. I don't know. To me
1: but What I don't happened know. was I was looking at the back and I saw Aquaman's hair and I went oh, right, right. I went, wow, that looks just like Jim Aparo. And I looked it, and I'm like, "Oh, it is Jim Aparo. Wow, there okay." You go. So, um, the, the, you know, Starro, um, we'll talk about him in the comments, because there's a fun bit there. I do like that they say Starro has a mysterious origin. I mean, this is the very first Justice League villain, and that they're saying at this point, we still don't know his origin. Which yeah, is kind it's of just interesting. A, from another planet. Nobody yeah. knows. And I kind of like that. I mean, do you, you don't need more. He's just an alien sp- Starfish, why do you need to know more? Yeah. Um, I do, you know, they, of course, the Reverend Snapper Carr, who defeated him uh, with lime that he was putting in his grass, which I love. Uh, you, they talk about how he appeared recently in Just League Europe. This, this is a great entry. Okay, here's why. Because the text, see how small the text is? But he's been around since 1960. Uh, 1960. But they go for very, very succinct. They basically, it, they tell you the spirit of the character, they reference a couple of appearances, and they move on. And that's what I love. I mean, really expertly done by Mark Wade. Really beautiful. Uh, again, first appearance, Brave in the Bold, number 28. And um, if you wanted more recently, he was just appearing in Justice League Europe just before this. And he's also been on, like, Batman Brave in the Bold. He's appeared in lots of different places. So, um, yeah, I think this is super fun. I, I really want to see this in live action. I think that would be fun for them to try and pull off. That would be – I yes, that would be really cool. All right, coming up on the last uh, typical – entry of the book and then we'll get to the poster is Star Sapphire and this is drawn by Terry Austin usually traditionally an inker you don't see him do a lot of penciling and she is this is the 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 revised costume that she picked up I I don't know whether it was the 80s or the 90s and uh, she is floating in space above this you know huge alien city probably uh, whatever their home planet is I can't remember and she's got you know purple energy flowing off of her and you know she's kind of sexy with her arms out but she's kind of screaming with a lot of space behind her it's a nice piece but I, I'm not a fan of this version of her costume. So what do you think? Yeah, same thing. I, I
2: like Terry Austin. I I mean, of course, one of the greatest thinkers ever. Um, as a penciler, I like his stuff. It's very cartoony. This is less cartoony than what you typically see of his. I actually like the insets a lot more. I think they have a lot more style. Yeah. Especially her driver's license photo. I just yeah. like the angle the, and the lighting is cool. But the, the I main image mean, I'm is, just, is is fine. But yeah, it's really the costume. I'm just like, yeah, all right, whatever.
1: Yeah, it doesn't do a tremendous amount for me. Um <clears throat> You know the gist of this is and I'm not going to go into a lot of it. This is the Carol Ferris version of Star uh, Star Sapphire, and they talk about how the, 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 the Zamorans they uh, they're they're an offshoot of the Owens and all that, and they choose their this is weird they choose their leader. They always seek out an alien mortal with certain characteristics. That's very specific. That's sort of weird and creepy that they do that. But anyway, so um, one of the, also I find it sort of interesting here, they talk about at this point Xamarin's gone because of the Millennium stuff, so she's a queen without subjects, and then they talk about she transforms back and forth between her and Carol Ferris and all that jazz. Then there's this whole stupid paragraph about the Predator, which I think is like the dumbest thing in comics ever. I hate it, so I'm, I don't want to address it any further. Uh, the only thing that disappoints me is there's nothing in here about the Secret Society of Supervillains version of the Stark mm, Sapphire, because right, right. in the 70s, they just... I think it happened in Green Lantern first, but they just replaced Star Sapphire with another one. I think her name was Celeste, if I remember right. And she was an ongoing character in the Secret Society Supervillains comic. And actually, I've been reading this. I, I have the two trades. And I was just reading them this past weekend because, you know, what else am I gonna do? I'm not leaving the house. And uh I, I'm really coming to like this this version of uh Star Sapphire, and I'm kinda bummed that uh she she's not mentioned. Now that, that version that I like from Super Secret Society of Supervillains is this middle inset, that's the same costume that she's got there. Text here is written by Mark Wade. First appearance as Carol Ferris was in Showcase number twenty-two in nineteen fifty-nine, then as Star Sapphire in Green Lantern number sixteen in nineteen sixty-two, so a few years later. And um, yeah, if you want more on her, you should listen to Lantern Cast, and there's other places you can find stuff, you know, about Star Sapphire. Now she becomes a pretty big player though later during Jeff Johns Green Lantern run, and they introduce the whole color spectrum, and uh, you know her version of the you know the ring, if you will, is, is a whole spectrum into itself. All right. So that's the entries. Now we have this giant fold-out poster. Uh, it's sort of like a, a triptych, if you will, uh, by Norm Brayfogel of the Batcave. And you've got uh, in the foreground there, you've got Harold, who was a, was a staple of the 1990s Batman books. He's working on some gadget for Batman. You see the who, giant
2: penny. Who is not mentioned in the text at all.
1: Harold wasn't, really.
2: No. I so if, so if you don't know who that is. You're like, well, who that? Um, Batman? There's a guy in the cave over there. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Wow. No, they don't mention them at all.
1: Well, you get the dinosaur, you got the joker playing card, you know, you get uh, like a giant chessboard and penguin umbrellas and whatnot, you see the bat. Uh, the Batmobile as designed by Brayfogle you see the Batboat you see the Batcopter and Batglider and all these things hanging around there you see Batman's at the computer with uh, the the Tim Drake Robin and Alfred's there with him and Ace the Bathound. and you see the Jason Todd costume of Robin you see I guess the Dick Grayson costume of Robin as well you see uh, maybe an old Batman outfit maybe that's the the, the original Batman, whatever, his dad or whatever costume, I don't know. Oh, God, no.
2: Oh, no. Whatever
1: version of it is. But it's its a fun piece. You know, it gave Norm Brayfuckle a chance to, like, you know, here, Norm, here's a giant canvas. Draw the whole cave. So I think it's fun.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's super fun. Again, the logo really
1: boring. Yeah. Just you have to get of, over that because you like, you can't nick every single entry for that. When yes, I can know.
2: and I will. Uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, you you really don't think you have a Batman logo available to just that says Batcave? Like you've already have the bat part done. Um, it's
1: your character, Rob. I mean, why yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Of course. Um, no, it's the the greatest superhero you know h q in 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 comics history sorry Bailey uh it's <laughs> just you know it's fantastic it's drawn by norm Brayvogel as you mentioned it's great it's enormously fun i love i love the whirly bad I love just everything about it it's it's, it's great it, it it really gives you a nice sense of the scope of the the Batcave, I mean, generally you kind of don't see big shots like this, so I like all that. I like you see the stairwell, and it talks about that the stairwell can be accessed through the grandfather clock, which was always one of my favorite little details, that mm-hmm. you can also get into the Batcave through the grandfather clock. Uh, I, I love it. It's, it's wonderful. I, the bat Batboat is kick-ass. Every, everything about this
1: is really great. A little creepy. Uh, I didn't realize the clock face to access it. You have to turn the hands to the specific time that Bruce's parents were murdered. He's ah. really got to get over that. That's it, right? <laughs> My parents are dead. Um, so it's it super fun oh, – by the way, the text is written by Mark Waid. Um And this is uh, – I'll finish this sentence, I promise. Uh, During this era of Batman, they had introduced the underground – basically like a rail car, almost like a subway car that Batman had to shoot over into Gotham. And I (laughs) I guess – no, it was pretty cool. It really was.
2: How did he get that put in?
1: Uh, how did he get any of this put in? I mean, the, the thing says him and Alfred built this thing. I'm like, oh BS. There's no way. Guys. Anyway, um, we we've always known that there's this whole contractor issue with Batman where he's got to have some contractors on the side. They come in here and maybe they only work on one piece or something, so they can't figure out the whole puzzle. I don't know, but I mean, any of this stuff. I think. Well, actually, I think Harold builds the underground railroad, if I remember right.
2: I see Batman's like, hey Alfred, I have to go take on the Riddler. Can you finish building the subway line for me by yourself by tomorrow? That'd be great.
1: Or someone's going to put in the comments. It was probably a disused railroad or something, or our subway system. I don't know. Whatever. But I was surprised not to see it here. But I guess it's just like just on the cusp of about to be introduced. I don't know. Now, I do love this entry. I think it's super fun. But if we were to compare the fold-out maps and say which one do you like better, the Fortress of uh, Solitude—I almost called it Bailey, dude—the Fortress of Solitude uh, fold-out map, or the or the Batcave map? Uh, not maps, but you know, posters. I think that I think I kind of like the Fortress one better, but that may be because I was more of a Superman guy in the '90s. I don't know. That
2: one's more of a map. That one's more of a, of almost something like a gamer could use. This is more of a presentation piece. Yeah, all right. Well. So it depends on what you what you want out of the the listings. I think as a poster kind of image, this this works better because you, although Batman's barely in it, Howard <laughs> All-Night is actually the bigger figure in this. Well, it's in um, that cave. It's not Batman. It, uh, yeah. Um, no, I I think. Yeah, I, I think they both serve different
1: purposes. And it's you know this is a nice bonus too because you've already got your twenty four entries, uh, and so the back caves on top of that, you know, you yeah. get an extra three pager that you didn't get um, yeah. in the other issues necessarily, and they didn't raise the price, so I, that's fun. So, all right, Rob, I ask you every issue, what are your favorite uh, entries in the book?
2: Okay, uh, my favorite entries in the book, I won't, I'm not going to say Starro because I just don't think it's that great a listing, even though it's by Jim Aparo, who I love. Uh, Mirror Master is one of the best ones. Hmm. Uh, Luthor points for the design. Interesting. Joke, the Joker simply because it's Brian Bolland. General yeah. Furies absolutely is one of okay. the best ones. Uh, and Catman is really good. Uh, Blackfire and Captain Cold are exceptional as well. This is very good art. Uh, very good art. That's a, so I'd, I'd say a higher proportion of great pieces in this issue art-wise than, than a lot of
1: other issues. I think part of that might be driven by, you know, being an all villains focused issue, they really had a chance to go after some of the more iconic villains. And I think, you know, you're going to get a lot more people raising their hand to draw, you know, oh, oh, I'll draw Mr. Mitzi's Pedalic versus, you know, Syphon and Dreadnought. So so, uh, for me, uh, a very similar list Uh, Joker, Blackfire, Catman, Eradicator. Because I love that one, uh, Cobra I think is beautiful, and Mister Mixie's Pedalik. So those are not those are the ones female I'm furies. Uh, you know, I, I, in hindsight, I would add them. I didn't, I didn't. write them down in this list, but I, you know, I'll, I'll backtrack and add that. I really, I really do like that piece. All right, all right. Well, woof! We are going to take a podcast promo break, guys. And when we come back, we are going to cover your listener feedback. In
0: 1939, Bob Kane and Bill Finger created a shadowy crime fighter. Steeped in the pulps and crime dramas of the time, that character was Batman. Over
3: the next 80 years, Batman not only became one of the most popular comic book characters of all time, but also became a television and movie phenomenon, appearing in both live-action and animated projects.
0: And then there are the plethora of video games, trading cards, action figures, and statues that have been made of him and his cast of characters.
3: Because of this, Mike and I want to spend the next year celebrating his 80th birthday.
0: And we're calling that celebration the Overlooked, Overlooked Dark, Knight Dark Knight Celebration, celebration of, of Batman's 80th, 80th birthday. birthday.
3: Yes. but Really? Really? that That's the best name that you could come up with. You've written panels, dude, and that's the best thing you could come up with.
0: It's accurate.
3: Yeah, but... You know, you and I have been podcasting a long time now. That was the placeholder name. We can do better than that.
0: Okay, what's your idea?
3: Well, what did we call it in the first episode of this series that we've already recorded?
0: I I really have no idea. It's a miracle that I remember what books we talked about.
3: But that's fair, because I don't remember that either.
0: Anyway, Andy and I are going to be spending May 2019 to May 2020 talking about Batman stories from all eras that we feel are either overlooked or too awesome not to talk about.
3: We're even going to have special episodes dedicated to things like the 1989 Batman film and what issues of detective comics we would include in a big hardcover collection.
0: Episodes will drop twice a month.
3: You sure about that?
0: To the best of my ability, episodes will drop twice a month at www.fortressofbailytude.com
3: You can also find the show on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app.
0: The Overlooked Dark Knight celebration of Batman's 80th birthday.
3: Because everyone is doing it, but we're doing it for a whole year.
0: The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of bailey podcasting
3: network. Alright, rights <laughs>
0: you don't understand. There was the high school episode and the future episode where they had a daughter. Of course, Milhouse is in game. Yes. And Lisa is so fulfilled in all of those. In fact, there's that Christmas episode where she's so fulfilled by him that who
2: is she calling Nelson?
0: You know why? Because
2: they are end game. It's almost stupid to even discuss it. This show's been going
0: on for, like, so long that there's so many different future scenarios. It's, like, it's been 30 years. Yeah, that's true. That reminds me of Stella on her podcast, Batgirl to Oracle. She's had a pretty healthy run. How long do you think it will last? <laughs> Forever. Ooh, let's give Stella a call. Hello? Hey, Hey, Stella. Stella. Why are you guys using Skype? Don't you want a feed time? No. Hmm.
2: Don and I were just talking about BTO and how long it's lasted. Remember when we were
0: kids, you didn't think it would go very far? What? What are you talking about? Stella, how long are you going to do this show? Meh. Ten episodes a year. We'll come first? Ha! You won't make it that long! You're a Yeah, and girls have cooties. Gee, you guys really were supportive back then. We made up for it. By doing what, mansplaining? And casplaining. Ugh. Well, anyway... 2020 is going to be a milestone. We've got the 10th anniversary in December and, of course, the 200th episode after that. What are you planning on doing? Call and show for listeners will be scheduled in December, and the 200th is going to feature some very special guest reviewers. Hopefully.
2: Ooh, I'll be sure to free my calendar. Not you.
0: You're, no. Fly on with Back Row to Oracle in 2020.
1: You know, I halfway expected. To get a call or a text from David A. Gutierrez halfway through the recording, just like he could sense it through the ether that we were doing Who's It?
2: <laughs> quite possibly. Uh, he's probably busy writing me separate angry texts or writing you separate angry texts aside from the different ones that he writes to us collectively.
1: That could be that could be, yeah so folks we are here to talk about your feedback in a segment called who's who How's and whys first thing we're going to do is we're going to hit an iTunes review we got recently. thank you so much for that folks please do go out on the uh, I, the Apple podcast and give us an iTunes review. It only takes a second and it helps raise the profile of the show because I mean think about there's a lot of folks that listen to the show and a lot of folks that love to interact in the comments and we'd love for, uh, to bring in some more so if you don't mind, uh, an iTunes uh, re- review would be appreciated yeah there are very there are a lot Of who's who podcasts out there, and it helps
2: our show get noticed among all of them out there. So, well,
1: and and I don't know whether Rob's talking tongue in cheek or not, but I mean, the the problem is there are actually a million who's who podcasts, but they're not about this who's who comic. It's like (laughs) who's who in business, who's who in car racing, and like, so if you type who's who in, we don't even come up on the first page of results. Because of that, now we are the only Who's Who DC Comics one, but you did that. That doesn't come up until you really search for it. No,
2: So, so yeah, we got a, uh, a review from someone named Cree K R E E Y. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Uh, Anyway, they say, amazing, such a great podcast. I first found this a few years ago while this dynamic duo were first recording episodes on the original 26-issue run and recently came back to the show after being distracted by shiny objects for a while. (laughs) Suffice it to say, I am in love. This podcast has deepened my appreciation for who's who and the history of the DC Universe in general. In the few years since first listening, I have dug through many a long box in search of these fabulous issues. I can now say proudly that I have the original copies of the 26 issues and the updates. And it's all thanks to listening to this podcast and hearing the passion of rob and shag regarding the artwork covers entries although i have only listened to this show and not delved into the rest of the fire and water family of podcasts i feel i am among a close group of friends that i appreciate comics like i do the show is chock full of great insights into this fabulous series and keeps me entertained shag and rob thank you so much for introducing me to the series and thank god i stumbled upon your show well thank you very much great that's a
1: fantastic review yeah, wow. I mean, and to, and to think that he listened to the show without even owning the comics. I mean, that's amazing. I i always thought that people would come to this if they had read it back in the day. So, um, yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, and I'm so wonderful. glad that we played some small role in helping someone find their joy. So thanks so much. Very cool. Now we're going to be covering feedback from uh, last episode, Who's Who number 12. We're going to be hitting uh, mainly our website for the comments and your emails uh, with so many comments coming in nowadays. Uh, we really got to focus there. So if you want your feedback run on the show, remember, go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com, go to the Who's Who page, and leave your comments on this episode. All right, uh, first up, Rob. Michael Kramer, aka Gold
2: Dragon 71. Uh, regarding the Aquaman listing, he says, I had not yet become an Aqua fan when this series came out. I had read the 1989 miniseries and would go on to be a big fan of the Spearhand Aquaman series. I agree with both of you that this particular entry could have been more dynamic. So, okay, there's that. Uh, he, he left comments about a lot of the entries, so we're just sort of a, cherry picking a few here. He goes on to Man Bad. He says, I like the Man Bat episodes of Batman, the animated series, but that was more of a chemically induced lycanthropy. Wait. Cryptothropy? Is that an acceptable (laughs) Bat-oriented variation of that term? The only Man-Bat story I had read at the time Was a story in the greatest Batman stories ever told I've recently been reading some of the Man-Bat's adventures In the detective and Batman family comics Where Kirk is a private detective And I really like that version of the character And then he talks about Mira And he says, see Aquaman I did love the catfish fight (laughs) Very funny The catfish fight Mira has with Balfin In the Peter
1: David series Oh yeah, all good stuff, Michael uh, then we heard from Michael Bailey, from Christ, uh, who does shows such as From Crisis to Crisis and uh, Views from the Long Box and many more. Michael writes about Bibbo. Remember Bibbo, Superman's pal. He goes, Bibbo is, no pun intended, my favorite. Jerry Ordway created the character based on one of the people that populated the bar that his mother owned while he was growing up. Jojo was an ex-sailor that would often walk Jerry and his brother to their grandmother's house and generally looked after them. One of the stories that Jerry told Jeff and I, meaning Michael Bailey was that Jojo came to the bar on one Sunday one Sunday when it was closed and he wanted in the police were called and Jojo took on several officers at once before his mother ran out and made them stop the sound of the night sticks hitting Jojo's skull <laughs> stuck with Jerry Ooh. And uh, eventually, though, they were able to get him released from custody and to help treat his wounds. And then Mike says, I liked Bibo before hearing these stories because he was an amazing sporting character that had a lot of heart. But after learning the origins of the character, I like him even more. Wow, that is a hell that's, of a
2: story. That's Jeez. amazing. I would have loved that to be in the
1: listing. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, then uh, going down, something to Silver Banshee. Mike writes. Full disclosure: I have recently re-listened to the original Who's Who episodes of the podcast up to the annuals, so this isn't my freaky memory coming in here. Uh, and he, he actually name checks me here. Anyway, he goes. They screwed up the first appearance again. Because remember, we talked about Silver Banshee's first appearance, and a million years ago when we covered it, we I think we caught it that the first appearance was messed up. He says in here it says action. Uh, he goes, it's uh, here. It says Action Comics five ninety five. Not 495. Someone was cutting and pasting. He says, I love this character. I've seen a few cosplays, per Rob's comment, and it kills me that I didn't have a camera when I saw the best one because it was dead on from the burn drawings. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, then we heard from this guy named Ryan Daly, who's part of something called the Firewater Podcast Network. I don't know him. Certainly haven't spooned with him. And he wrote, Oh, wasn't the original plan to follow all the various Who's Who episodes with coverage of Secret Origins? That sounds good. Looking forward to it. Um, You know, Rob, that was our original plan. After we finished Who's Who, we were going to tackle Secret Origins, and no one has done a good – podcast about Secret Origins yet, so maybe we still should. There's
2: room in the network to tackle it, that's for sure. I tell you.
1: Yep. Uh, then we heard from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast and DC OCD and, and many more. He writes about Elastigirl, and he says the TV show depiction of Rita losing her cohesion and blobbing out, because uh, I had talked about that, and I thought that was a really neat aspect in the show. He goes, that was actually set up in the 2009 Doom Patrol uh, run by Keith Giffen and Matthew Clark. That run established that Rita's body could take tremendous damage, be split apart part and reformed without consequence she reconstitutes her body built from her self memory and of photos and he says i really love the appearance uh the performance of april bow uh bow- i don't know how to say that uh in the series and she is easily becoming my favorite character in the ensemble and the definitive version of the character hmm, very cool paul
2: uh yeah he also mentions uh tasmanian devil he says i don't live in canberra but i do work there
1: well, uh, and that's me because I mentioned that I thought he Paul lived in that area because so I remember he and I talked about it on the JLI show because we were talking about the aftermath of invasion and how that city had been decimated and that's where Paul worked and all this. And I just got a little mixed up between where Paul works and lives. And right now, don't we all live where we work? I mean really? That's, that's
2: a good point. Uh, <laughs> we got comments from Damien. Uh, how do you pronounce – do you know how to pronounce that middle name there?
1: Well, uh, other than the fact that it's phonetically one row down and he thanks you for getting it right last time.
2: I don't bother to read that stuff. I just highlight the stuff I read. So uh, (laughs) Damien a Whiter – Whiter, excuse me, uh, regarding Aquaman. He says, I agree that Ken Hooper's pinup is pretty dull. Wish they had gotten a paro, see, or even Adam Hughes who drew a gorgeous Aquaman during the Kui 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 storyline. I was going to ask why Aquaman looks depressed in all the images, but obviously it is to poor dead Aqua baby.
1: You know, I will say, uh, you know, Aparo would have been amazing, uh, and and I get why they used Hooper because I mean that was his series, right? But, you know, um, I'll tell you one thing, and I don't know if we'll ever get to this, but you know, like uh, McGuire did a lot of those covers that run. I wasn't a big fan of those hmm. of the, the McGuire Aquaman covers. It just it didn't it didn't sit right with me. That's nothing to do with what we're talking about, but nope. I just felt like saying it. All right, Uh, then Damien goes on to talk about Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress. He says, how can Blue Jay be so bulbously muscular but have such a flat crotch? (laughs) You can tell that Bart Sears used to design action figures. Poor Blue Jay. (laughs) (laughs) I love that.
2: Uh, Regarding Cheshire, he says, Rob is right. This is super cool. Terry Olsen is a great anchor for Colleen Doran. It looks like Cheshire's in a bit of a corner. That's not enough room to swing a dead cat in that space. Sorry. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Damien. I appreciate the Cheshire love.
1: Uh, and then an uh, Elastigirl. He says, "Love this image." Uh, okay, now here's the thing. I I haven't listened back to our last episode yet. I know that we were speculating in the first part of that episode about who inked the Elastigirl drawing. We were right, there. right. And, and we found out it was Ty Templeton. Uh, we it, you speculated it was Ty Templeton, and then we found out it was. I can't remember whether that made it on the air or not. It like, did. Maybe in the in, no, it in did. the comments. Because I, 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 we recorded that one half and half, if I remember right. We did, like, the entry, and then we did the comments, like, a week later or something. So I don't know. Either way. Um, if, we, if we didn't get it on the air, folks, Ty Templeton inked the elastical. And, uh, and here, Damien actually helped confirm it for us. He says, love the image. It was really weird hearing your conversation about who inked this when I had already gotten into a Twitter conversation about where I suggested Ty Templeton, and then Ty Templeton confirmed it. So there we go. Then going further down, Metal Men. Uh, I, I I trashed the Metal Man entry last time. I think we both did. I know I definitely did. Oh, I didn't – I don't think I
2: trashed it. I think I, I – think did we trash it? I thought we were just kind of well, like it okay. was I
1: trashed the era. Let's put it that way. Okay. I trashed the era oh. of Metal Man. And, uh, he says, you're being a bit unfair to Dan Jurgens because and, I did not like that miniseries. And he says the guiding force behind the Metal Man series was Mike Carlin. Who wrote it? Uh, supposedly, the storyline was deliberately set up in the burn action issues, where, and it was edited by Carlin. So, okay. I apologize. Uh, Dan Jurgens, then um, they, they, we should not be held responsible. It would be more of a Mike Carlin thing, because that series oh, just sits so bad, poorly with me. Um, then in Mr. Freeze, he goes, I, I always loved David A. Williams. We talked about him today, remember? we Because he did... Um, uh, one of these entries that we've
3: thank
1: you. Yes. We just talked about it a couple minutes ago and I couldn't come up with it anyway, because I always loved David A. Williams work since I first saw it on the impact Jaguar title. I'd forgotten about that. Apparently he left comics for animation, but he's come back in the last few years doing some amazing Marvel covers in various bits and bobs, mainly on the books designed for younger readers. I'm going to have to check that out, because I'm yeah, I'm loving this artwork by him right now. Then on Stealth, uh, we had talked about how Keith Giffen drew the Stealth entry, and I was telling you how like Stealth is kind of this sexy character, and that Keith Giffen drawing was not. Uh, well, he's, he indicates here that Keith Giffen and um, uh, George Pratt drew Legion, acronym Legion number 28, which was a body horror story about Stealth giving birth to her baby, and then he goes, it's better than it sounds. So, all right, interesting. And that actually gets referenced later how important that issue is. So, very cool. Thank you so much. Then we heard from Jeff R. And we had talked about how, last issue, how, uh, I can't say the guy's name, was Zaji Zaji, or, or Dr. Zaji, whatever Z- the crazy or
2: whatever, yeah.
1: Yeah, the, the Batman serial killer. And then the question, secret identity. And I was pointing out that it's almost identical spellings, but there was no thread between the two characters other than Denny O'Neill. Right. And what Jeff comes in, he goes, this is interesting. He says both Zajas are references to the real world fringe psychologist, Thomas Zaja. So there is a connection. Well, I'd never knew that. So no that's idea. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Jeff.
2: Uh, yeah. And we got a comment from Eric of fish flavored baseball bat blog. Uh, he says uh, a note on Manbat at a convention earlier this year. I brought the Manbat and Captain Cold pages to Michael Golden's table for him to sign. As he signed the Manbat page, he revealed that he had actually drawn the page to be seen right side up, with the moon at the top of the page and the buildings at the bottom. But they flipped it in production, presumably so that Manbat himself wouldn't be upside down. He was pretty upset by the reversal, feeling that the composition worked better in its original form. Golden did draw the Man Bat feature in Detective Comics when he took over for the Batman Family Anthology Formula. I forget whether he only drew one or two installments before Steve Ditko took over the feature. Okay, I got a couple comments related to this. First of all, thank you, Eric, right. for that information. That's fantastic. Um, secondly, it is sort of funny when we do these who and we make a mistake or that we simply don't mention something and then we get besieged with comments <laughs> – About it, and everyone thinks they're the first person to tell us. So, like, on the day that the Who's Who episode dropped, I think we we were told by 17 different people that Michael Golden drew the Man-Bat feature in Batman Family Comic.
1: Well, I think I actually posed the question. I think I actually said, did Michael Golden have a connection to him? And I don't think we could come up with it. I think I we're think like, wait, it seems like he would. Right. But I, but I mean, it's just so, But
2: It's like it just all of a sudden it was like every comment was like, you know, he drew it in Batman Family. text like, yeah, OK, all right. Yeah, I know. By the nighttime, I've been told this.
1: All right, um, guys, I, I will defend and say, you know what? Keep telling us when we're stupid because it gives us this awesome feedback. So I'm fine with it. And anytime you can point out Rob not knowing something. Even if I don't do, I'm fine with
2: that. Well, there you go. And then the third comment is the thing about flipping the image. Um, uh, Something I learned in art school was, uh, you know, a really good artist can draw something. And if you flip the image uh, reverse or move it around and it still holds, it still holds together, then it's a really good drawing. And I was never able quite able to do that. But it says something about the skill of Michael Golden that you could take an image of his, completely do a 180 on it, and it still looks
1: fantastic. I think it looks better the way they produced it, actually, because I, I looked at it afterwards and like kind of looked at, like on my head. And I'm like, eh, nah, I kind of like the way they did it. Okay, I, Cause I it mean, gives it, more of a sense of him like falling out of the sky that way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I mean, I I think both versions look great, but I mean, it, to me again, it says something that it doesn't look wrong, yeah. even though it was flipped completely opposite of what Michael Golden intended.
1: Yeah, I, I wasn't trying to of contradict you there. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. your, your your point is absolutely valid.
2: Uh, so that's, again, thank you for that information. I think that's, that's great, Eric. That's really cool. I've seen Michael Golden in a couple of shows, and uh, I should do that to get him some sign some Husos. So uh, we got a comment from Chris Franklin, of course, from our very network regarding Aquaman. He says, I really like this piece. I liked Ken Hooper's art in the title. It's very nicely realized, illustrative style. Yes, it's not comic dynamic, but it has this nice lyrical quality to it, which works with an underwater character, in my opinion. Okay, Chris, that's fine. You can be wrong. It's not a big deal. Wow.
1: Okay. Uh, then he says that he erroneously writes Hawk Girl. Shame on you, Chris. It's Hawk Woman. Uh, and he says, you know, Cindy and I really need to reiterate how influential this version of Shiera was on Hawk Girl moving forward on the JLU cast. Uh, thank you for acknowledging that. Yes, uh, that everyone bags on the Hawk World Hawkman series from the '90s. Meaning, oh, the boring wings and all that. But yeah, that version of Shaira, super super informed. Uh, hot girl going, hot, girl, hot, hot woman going forward.
2: Absolutely. Uh, again, regarding Man-Bad, he says, Shag, what did Batman ever do to you? <laughs> yes, Man-Bad is similar to the Lizard, but Aquaman is similar to Namor, and you've devoted half your life to talking about him. Fantastic piece, no matter if it's upside down or right side up. As the others have stated, Golden drew Man-Bad and Batman family and detective in the 70s. Uh, regarding Mira, he says, mm, not a huge fan of this one, as, uh, as I have said elsewhere. I felt like Sprouse gave everyone the same face back in this era. That's an ironic comment coming from a Kurt Swan fan, Chris. Um, uh, Mira and Aquaman even seem to have the same face. It's not bad, just not as gobsmacked as Rob. I, I, I will appre- I will acknowledge that, yes, I think Chris Sprouse did kind of do – the same face over and over again. Mm -hmm. But I, but I like that Mira looks like she's floating in water. And I just think it's a a pretty image, but I, I can't disagree with the face
1: thing. Yeah, that, that as I said in the episode, that image just doesn't do it for me. So uh, then on Zatanna, he writes, "What a great piece! I would love to see Eric Shanower draw a New Frontier esque Silver Age DC comic one shot or miniseries." I've been wanting more ever since his JLA issue of Secret Origins. Wow, Chris, I couldn't agree more. Seeing a like you said something like New Frontier done under his pencils would be beautiful. That'd be great.
2: Uh, we got a comment from the aforementioned David Es Gutierrez. Of course, as Shag's making me say, he's the owner and operator of the Katana Banana Stand, which now has Curbside Pickup. Uh, so has,
1: <laughs> I thought that was really clever. <laughs> that was
2: a good joke. Uh, you, uh, hashtag current. Uh, you know for a long time I never got the character called Red Bornado. Thanks to Rob, it hit me. A robot longing to feel to understand the human condition? Well, that's a Robbot, isn't it? Why are his eyes leaking? That sort of thing. A true synthesis of Richie Rich and Irona. This
1: is, this is the kind of stuff we get every day, guys. Every day. Every day. Uh, and then he writes – and, and I, I I probably unfairly stack the deck here with pro Hawkwoman comments because I'm such a fan, but here, here's another one. He goes, this version of Shiera is the definitive one to me. So, all right, David said something logical.
2: Uh, he says, "Man, bat is what you get if Golden Globus made a Batman movie." <laughs> just, he's a man. He's the bat. Who's a man? Yes, that is exactly what you would have gotten. No, oh, yeah, yes, yeah. Joseph Zito. Uh, so, uh, got a comment from Matt Royce. He says, "This episode really illustrated how the colored borders were more trouble than they were worth." Oh, Matt, uh, you're on my you're on my crap list. Uh, hashtag preach, uh, Matt. He says, "Why bother having bothered? Why having borders indicate heroes if you're going to lump Zantana and other supernatural heroes?" together with the villains that were also supernatural. Not to mention the mistakes like listing Man-Bat as supernatural or the arguments about whether Suicide Squad is a hero team or Project Cadmus is technology. They would have been better if without it. I, t- I agree, Matt. Oh,
1: Matt, you're hurting my soul. And we just had to hear Rob say Zantana again. Oh, just, I don't know why you... you Rosan <laughs> well,
2: Zantana, Dana. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just irritates me. <laughs> The guy who can't say nuclear. That's
2: right. So we got a comment from Gothos Mansion. He says, I was involved in a discussion somewhere, Batman 66 board maybe, uh, where we wondered if Batman number 176 with the December 1965 cover date was one of the issues the producers of the TV show uh, read to prepare for the show. It is an 80-page reprint and features Mr. Zero's first and at a time only appearance, as well as stories with Penguin, Catwoman, who had been absent for several years prior to that point, and the Joker's utility belt story that was adapted into an episode. Nice detective work, Gothos. That's nice. I, that really hangs together. I could see that. Detective work. That's clever. Good I'm joke. Up. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, it's no banana stand joke, but I it can <laughs> it's clever things occasionally. Uh, Ward Hill Terry, uh, of course, he's been on a couple of our shows recently. He says it's great to hear you be. be you, it's great to hear you both be so positive about so many characters. Here I come to be fussy and lay the groundwork for Frank. Aquaman looks constipated. He's double over and his face shows great distress. That initial reaction compels me to scrutinize the image further to find more annoyances. Yellow eyebrows. Blonde people do not have banana yellow eyebrows. (laughs) Bubbles from the nose. That shows that Aquaman is releasing air through his nose. Why? Was he holding his breath? breath? Why? Why? The green sea turtle looks pretty cool. The tube-like fish isn't an eel. There is no dorsal fin. One little annoyance leads to so many others, like dot, 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 Mira. The pick is very nice, except she looks like Sandra Bernhardt, which is not appealing to me. Also, she
1: totally does. When, it, when I read that, I was like, oh, oh my God.
2: <laughs> she does. You can see Mira's talking about Madonna all the time. Also, Arthur Jr. Uh, both entries include the sad story of Arthur Jr. Why did this story survive the crisis? Superman. Never Superboy. Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Not married. Bad always hated Superman. Arthur Junior. That story is canon. It cannot be changed. Same thing with Mister Terrific. I, that, that is a f- that's a fair comment, Ward Hill. That why that story of all made it through the crisis.
1: Here's an interesting thought. Do you realize that we created a situation where Ward Hill, Terry, and Diablo, Frank were in the same room at the same time? That's I I deeply apologize to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> then we hear from Noah Tarnow. Um, Noah writes, "I saw uh, he was talking about Zoom. You can worry." And he says, I suspect that Zoom did a listing for the squid because at some point there were plans for a squid entry in the original Who's Who series. And he says, see the croc listing in issue number five where it says, in quotes, see squid. Uh, And they said they started thinking about other cross-references in the original series that never ended up with corresponding series. I know there was a Supertown and a Superman's Fortress of Solitude. I'm sure there were others that aren't coming to mind. Yeah, like, for example, see Superman 2. Uh, that one it was it was a good example too. Yep. But um, good good catch. That could very well be why he did the squid. Interesting.
2: Good detective work.
1: Yep. And then we, uh, that joke doesn't work that time. Uh, then we heard from James Stubbs. He wrote, "Hey guys, any plans to cover the Who's Who pages in the new Watchman Companion? I intend on getting it just for the reprints of those old Mayfair DC heroes RPG materials in it." Uh, James, I I don't think we're probably going to touch on that um, that particular one. I now I haven't read. A real real in-depth into this, so I apologize. But I think, aren't those Who's Who entries just a reprint of the original ones? Uh, I think, because they, so. they were in the old Who's Who, but maybe they've done some new ones. I'm not sure. And as far as the Mayfair books, uh, you know, maybe we'll touch on it on a Hero Points at some point. I actually have the originals, um, and they're interesting. I mean, Alan Moore is actually credited in one of them. So, um, you know, we may touch on it in another show, but I don't think we'll do it on Who's Who. But thanks for asking.
2: Our pal Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog says, cheers for another listenable episode. Thank you, yeah. Martin, for that rave comment. We always wow. strive to be listenable. Uh, he says, opinions can't be wrong, but so far as Hawkworlds World's Hulk Girl being the best version, Shag is just plain wrong. I hate all these grumpy Hawk Girls and women, and those stupid bin lid wings were ludicrous. Who wants a flying bird character without bird wings? <sighs> Gosh. Lizane Oswald uh, says, Mr. Freeze looks fine. The cartoon definitely took him to the next level. Michael Ansara's voice definitely helped this character. That is absolutely true. Michael Ansara did a great job as Mr. Freeze.
1: Uh, Let's see. Then, oh, I'm sorry. You're up with Tim Price.
2: Yeah, next up is Tim Price uh, from the Right On Podcast Network. Uh, He says, and and also recently appeared on a Legally Actionable episode of – (laughs) of this. <laughs> Or Loc Thanos Podcast. Um, <laughs> he says, regarding Chesire, in some of her appearances, it's noted that she's triple jointed. Ooh, that's fun. Meaning that she's not just a badass martial artist, but she can attack in seemingly impossible ways. But no comic artist, including creator George Perez, ever portrayed this in any way. The only time I've ever seen this attempt, it was on the Teen Titans cartoon, where her movements made her look like a rag doll or marionette minus the strings. It was freaky as anything and right on the money. That's really cool. That That is a very disturbing ability.
1: Hmm. All right. Uh, then we, he comments about blue jay and silver sorceress. Now, Tim has this amazing memory. He's, he's one of my JLI guys. And uh, he, he really always comes up with these interesting insights about not necessarily what happened in the comics, but what didn't happen in the comics. And he says, I need to pay extra attention when the JLI podcast reaches the issues where those uh, Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress are in the same issues as General Glory, since the three of them are all Avengers analogs, but do not have any shared history. There should be ample chances for like a wink to the reader saying, you remind me of someone. And then, you know, something like that. But I don't recall them from memory. So I doubt it was done. See, that's that's exactly the kind of stuff that didn't happen in the comic, but Tim thinks of, and it's like, oh yeah, that totally should. That's interesting. All right,
2: yeah, that's, that's, that's really cool. Uh, he says when the episode started, I wasn't really, I wasn't ready to hear the disclaimer about Zoom. I was in my car pulling into the office parking lot and I started to choke up. I know I never met uh, met him, let alone interacted with him, but you podcasters have become terribly important to me, and we get to see another Zooms who. Thanks for sharing it, guys. Uh, yes, Tim, none of us were, were were ready for that, even though we knew it was coming. Uh, and, and regarding material from Zoom, I am not sure that it will ever stop coming. I think Zoom, <laughs> Zoom had so much material stacked up. And there's even more stuff that even I didn't know about that uh, I think we will be hearing him from him kind of forever because he was just banking so much. Because you know, he was crazy like that. <laughs>
1: Prolific might be a nice way to put it, but okay. <laughs> I think he would and, uh, be okay effect, with crazy. W- when we get to uh, Zoom's Hoot today, it's uh, another entry that I don't know that we knew existed until – Yeah,
2: uh, exactly.
1: So, just, yep. he's like, uh, then we're, he's like then Tupac. We from, <laughs> then we heard from my buddy Philemon, who is the president of the Jericho Fan Club. And by the way, he gave himself that label this time, not me, so it actually is on our page. I love meetings
2: that. are so quiet.
1: <laughs> and he says, uh, "You, this is <laughs> this is so good." He goes, uh, "I don't know if I can get it without laughing." He says, "You two can mock Snapper Car all you want."
2: Okay, I will. No.
1: <laughs> but remember, if it weren't for him, you'd be wearing a starfish <laughs> as a facial accessory. <laughs> um, uh, Mademoiselle Colbert may be good with computers, but I don't remember her fighting off intergalactic <laughs> guest with lawn maintenance. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. That was awesome.
2: I still hate snapper car. Uh, he says, I am of two minds about your story of David Escutier is texting you when your podcasts are not of the who's Who variety. Firstly, it makes me feel better about the messages I leave here and on Twitter when it has been a few months without a who's Who update. That being said, I'm hurt that Dag has access to your cell phone number and I don't. Come on, Chag, We could stay up late and chat about Jericho and forever people. Doesn't that sound fun?
1: Well, here's the true story behind this. You know, David, he's been arrested many, many times, and he ha- every time he fills out the bail forms, he has to have an emergency contact, and he can't tell his wife, clearly. So he asked me for my cell phone number. I gave it to him, not realizing how much he would abuse it. So well, the that, weird, that's how that came to be. See, the
2: weird thing is with me, I keep moving on to burner phones, and he keeps finding the number. I don't know how he manages to do it. So I'm constantly throwing flip phones out and then thinking he's not going to get this number this time, and then boom, another text message when who's who's not out, so.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine how he keeps getting that number when you irritate me. Mm. It's weird.
2: Uh, Interesting. Uh, He says, I have to take my hat off to Rob. I consider myself to be the luckiest man in the world for being able to convince my wife to marry me, but you will only begrudgingly read the comics I offer her to read. The idea of buying one, even autographed by Neil Gaiman, and giving it to her for a gift is laughable. So you either married well above your station, well, yes, or a terribly unromantic gift giver, and it isn't my place to decide which one. Okay, a couple things. First of all, just to be just to be specific, we are not married. We are living in sin. So there's that. Uh, Second of all, I mean, I think gifts are romantic if they are meaningful to the person who is receiving them. And and as I mentioned, Kelly is a huge Neil Gaiman fan. And so it meant a lot to her. And so therefore I considered it a romantic gift, even though it, you know, maybe some people wouldn't think of it like that. But she has in her mind, she has an autographed Neil Gaiman book on her bookshelf. And that's how she sort of looks at it.
1: Well, it's, uh, you know what? I, I, I like her too much, so I, I have a lot of jokes built into that, but I will just leave it be. So uh, it, it, I I can tell you, folks, that it meant a lot to her. It really did. So Even though I really want to take a cheap shot at Rob. Uh, then he goes on to say about Cheshire. He goes, the best thing that ever happened to this character is her daughter, Leanne. And nothing bad ever happened to Leanne, in all caps. So there's that. And uh, usually I completely disagree with Phylon and say he's crazy, but no, he is absolutely correct here. Nothing bad ever happened to that child. And that is the end of that story. Uh, then he writes about inner gang. Am I the only one who has an issue with a large, shadowy organization being showcased, showcased with the, quote, representative sampling entry approach? If I had no clue who this group was, how would I know that it wasn't just comprised of these seven characters seen in this image? I don't have a great solution here, but I feel like there ought to be a way to do a listing for a massive conspiracy group like this so that it doesn't look like they have a definitive roster like the Outsiders or Justice League. Dude, you're not wrong. That intergang picture it was just such a. Uh, we talked about it last time. It's it's a big mess. It looks like honestly an ad for I don't know, like the Tortellis. You know, is, I mean that's how. <laughs> yeah, there's deep, a deep deep guide. cut. But it's, you know, related to the network, so. But, I mean, that's how goofy and dumb it looks. It doesn't look like something yeah, I would be worried about. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan. Again, uh, don't, guys, don't tell Philemon I agreed with him, because I just, uh, that's, that's just going to go south, so. All right, then we heard from Mark Ross, who goes by Cluck Trent, I, which I love. He says, uh, about Zoom who He goes, I was really surprised to hear that the appearance of the human flying fish in Super Friends No. 1 was his, only his second appearance after 15 years. I'd assume they he'd appeared more than that, and that's why he was chosen for that group of villains. Funny. Uh, Mark, it is sort of surprising, but then you have to remember, it's an Aquaman villain, so really nobody cared. Then uh, some guy named Shag wrote in, uh, and and he mentions that there was a lovely shout-out to the Who's Who podcast by Rain. Um, and I can't say her last name, but Zaramski, the artist on the Elastigirl entry, because you know we raved about that Elastigirl entry last time, and she was kind enough to listen to the show, and so she uh, she gave us a little shout out on her Patreon, which uh, was really greatly appreciated. Yeah, Thanks that so was fun. really cool. Yep. Then we heard from David Crab from the Fanholes podcast and the history on of comics on film. Did
2: YouTube you just series. say David
1: Crab? I may have. I may have. I'm really, really hyped up on Pepsi Zero. Derek
2: William Crabb. Say the whole name. Derek William Crabb. Derek
1: William Crabb. Derek William Crabb. Derek William Crabb. His mother didn't name
2: him Derek William Crabb for you to call him David Crabb. What the <laughs> hell is that about? Well,
1: we've been talking so much about David H. Gutierrez. That could be what's, what's wrong here. Anyway, uh, Derek William Crabb. Thank you. 36 minutes into this and 100% yes! Losing Comic Book D.B is like losing the right arm of online researching and sanity-preserving organizational reading orders and order of appearances for characters, creators, and more. Thank you so much, Derek. Yes, uh, especially this particular podcast, because the amount of research that goes into appearances, how long ago characters had appeared in comparison to who's who, uh, all of those things, the artists, the writers, creators, everything, the comic book database, DB was organized in such a useful manner that I, literally, I, I feel like I'm at a huge disadvantage now doing the research for the Who's Who podcast, and this is going to come up again one more time uh, later in the feedback. But yeah, it's it's really challenging and it's killing me.
2: Uh, David continues to go on. He says, uh, "Doing it's not this, David, doing Sunday chores, podcast okay. listening, okay. one hour and six minutes in. Min- yes, Robin meets Manbat a thousand times. Yes, the power record absolutely left the most vibrant, creepy, effective, and lasting impression of Manbat on me as a child." Yeah, absolutely. That is really one of the great Man bad appearances is that is that Power Record, which, by the way, will be covered very soon on the Power Records podcast. I can say that right now. Didn't you
1: already cover it on the Power Records podcast? Well,
2: we did it on an episode of Fire and Water back when we were doing Power Record episodes of yeah. Fire and Water, but that was like – Something like seven years ago. <laughs> um, so uh, Chris and I decided that we are going to do it proper on the Power Records podcast. So oh, sweet. That's coming that's cool. up soon.
1: Yeah. Something to look forward to. Yep,
2: uh, Mike Dinas says again regarding Man Bat. So amazing. This is a character that would work great in a more gothic-themed Batman film. I would love to see a live-action Man Bat. That would look – oh, God. I think that would be so friggin' cool looking. I can see they'll never do it, but, man, that would be neat. Something like – if Batman was ever directed by Guillermo del Toro, that's the character you do.
1: Yeah, a Man-Bat movie. That would – that'd be awesome. (laughs) I'd love that. Uh, Then we heard about from the Metal – about – I'm (laughs) sorry. I'll put myself back together. So much talk about Man-Bat threw me off. Mike continues about about the Metal Men. He goes, this group is one of my favorite teams of all time, but a lot of it has to do with the covers by Jim Aparo and Walt Simonson. Now, if you remember, Rob, we did an episode about Jim Aparo covers, and I raved about his Metal Men covers. Yes, we did. We're we're together on that one, buddy. And he goes, there is a current Metal Men series right now, which isn't too bad, and features an nth Metal Man. Dude, I had no idea there was a Metal Men series right now. No, I had no idea. (laughs) Is it tied to the whole dark metal thing? Because it sounds like it might be. Because if if it is that, I I don't know if I'm going to – I don't know. Anyway, and he goes, Zatanna. Another entry where it really shows off the character in a dynamic way. Why can't all entries be like this? Yeah, that that Zatanna entry was great. And then he says, Rob, as an artist, hypothetically, if you were to get a who's who entry to draw, would the editor tell you what to draw, or at least an outline? Or does the artist pretty much get free reign here? Now, now I know we – well, that's question one. Then question two is, uh, if this fictitious editor said you could draw any entry, who would you want to draw? So, Rob, I'm interested to hear this.
2: Okay. I mean, first of all, how it's done, I think it's going to vary. I I think somebody like um, Brian Bolland would be able to do whatever he wanted. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I think it would all depend on the artist. Some artists that were more up-and-comers would probably get more editorial direction, and then other ones, like I said, like Brian Bolland or an Adam Hughes, they would pretty much just, hey, I want to draw a Joker. Okay, you know, send it in when you're done, that kind of thing.
1: Um, if I can add to that, my, my supposition would be also, since this Who's Who was so focused on the contemporary DC universe, there might be times where you would get a note saying, okay, if you're going to draw Hawkwoman, we need it to be oh, the sure, modern version. Sure. Or, or some iconography from the current series,
2: yeah, yeah, right, absolutely, um but other than that, I think it's really going to depend i'm sure they they weren't uh you know who's who wasn't telling Jack Kirby what to draw, you know, were <laughs> just right, go ahead and do yeah. it, so there's that um if if I ever drew i mean it's hard for me to put my mind my my Imagination to that because my drawing skills are so pathetic at this point. Obviously, the, the 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 main answer would be Aquaman. I would love to draw Aquaman, but that's a boring answer.
1: Yes, it um,
2: is. I, I I will say I think like I would have loved to have drawn someone obscure uh, and get to do the thing that we've always talked about, that we love, which is like get an obscure character and really make it look cool. Like I said, like a Captain Fear or a Johnny Thunder, or Ultra, the multi-alien. I knew that um, one was coming. Yeah, I mean, I one, mean what, one of one those, of those like Space Cabby, just something that uh, nobody thought about for a long time, and re- you got to do a cool, and if I want to say related document, I would love to have done the Human Flying Fish. Actually, I think that would have been really fun. So any of those would have been, you know, obviously in a parallel world where I'm drawing comic books and
1: doing something for Who's who, would have been amazing. I tell you what, I probably would have tapped you for, uh, and maybe this is too on the nose. You would but... have
2: tapped me, Shag. That's interesting. Okay. Well, you know, we've been together a long
1: time. It's just a matter of time, isn't it? Anyway, um, no, it would have not. been with with your amazing, you know, Universal movie posters that you did, uh, renditions of and things like that. I would love to see you maybe tackle some of those characters. So I started thinking, you know, could could you do a very realistic, creepy version of the? Um, Oh gosh, what are they called? Uh, the 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 monster, not the Monster Squad, the World War Two. Uh, oh, the Creature Commandos. Creature Commandos might have been something really cool to see you do, or maybe just a, a really creepy version of the Patchwork Man or something like that. That's probably what cool. I would okay, to See you that? At. Yeah, it would be cool.
2: Thank you. Yes, yep. I would have been fun to do some monster lighted stuff. That would have been neat. Yeah. All
1: right, then we heard from Joe X who wrote Silver Banshee, first appeared in the History of the DC Universe portfolio in a piece for John Burns Freaks, along with an early version of the Next Men characters. I actually knew some of that and had forgotten. I probably knew because Joe probably wrote in last time we got with the character. But, um, yeah, I completely forgot about that. It's really interesting. Then we heard from Mike LaCroix from the Canadian Military History Podcast. He wrote, Gents, I just bought the reprint edition of Detective Comics 259, the million-dollar debut of Batgirl. There was an ad for Captain Action that can be made up as Aquaman. And the Aquaman outfit came with a trident. Uh, Now, this was part of your discussion on the podcast regarding about where the trident first appeared. Perhaps there's something even before that. I am. Hmm. I'm really ashamed that I forgot that because I have shame, shame, shame.
2: I have a Captain Action Aquaman doll sitting here to my left in the box, uh, <laughs> and so and it comes with a trident. So I am really ashamed. Yeah, that is most certainly the first piece of merchandise that Aquaman ever came with with the trident, and was probably the first time he ever was given one. Uh, In any real permanent way, because obviously Captain Action, the whole big thing with Captain Action is that he came with a million accessories. So Mm. he come, I mean, they give him flippers for Pete's sake, something Aquaman does not need,
0: Uh, (laughs) but he
2: has a conch shell and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm betting that the Captain Action is probably the first Aquaman
1: Trident you've ever really seen. All right. Nice detective work. Uh, the, the next comment is going to come from Diablo Frank. Rob's going to read it, but I got to tell you. So if you don't know Diablo Frank, he, he's terrifying. Uh, he writes like these dissertations on, on, on here. That it, it reads a little bit like Mon Kampf. But uh, Frank, you can find him over the World Spine Podcast Network. They do the Marvel Superheroes podcast, but they've launched another one, Rob, called Marvel Handbook, the unofficial podcast of their universe. So it's almost like a sister show. To the Who's Who update, or maybe more like a bizarro world show, actually, because Frank is terrifying and crazy. So, uh, yeah, but there's, you know, hey, it's are checking out, definitely, folks. Uh, again, it is the Marvel Handbook, the unofficial podcast of their universe. I
2: prefer to call his comments manifestos, but that's, you know,
1: that's, you know, actually, that is the word I was looking for.
2: You're mild, but I maybe. come up with it. But anyway, yes, Uh, regarding Uh, Aquaman, he says, The short-lived 1991 Aquaman miniseries sported one of his better logos, and in a break from both Rob and Shag, I much preferred the Sean McLaughlin volume over most others. I read the series in anticipation of Peter David's run, only to be gravely disappointed with that series, both in a vacuum and in comparison to the book canceled to clear the way for it. McLaughlin had complained that DC should have allowed him to kill off Black Manta, which would have finally resolved that damaging issue. While I agree that the original Manta needed to die, I don't think it was in Aquaman's best interest to serve as executioner, as his emotional inability to allow himself revenge enhanced his character. Chadwickian artist Ken Hooper was probably too gentle for his times, but I thought he was a good, if not exactly commercially viable choice for the story and its hero. As much as I enjoyed the adventures of Captain America and Bucky, I think everyone would have been better served with his drawing six Aquaman issues and handing it off to Hooper rather than three quarters of a forgotten prestige format miniseries. The title visibly faltered once Hooper left, and McLaughlin didn't seem to have have another arc in him assuming he wasn't just playing out time on a lame duck
1: volume then frank chimes in on the comic book db issue he says he typically use comic book D, db as a third option after comic vine and grand comic database depending on the needs of a given bit of research you'll all be fine frank i took your advice i used comic book uh grand or the grand da- comic database and comics fine and they freaking suck for research. Let me tell you, because where Comic Book DB excelled was the ability to search by title or search by publication history, like actual publication date and things like that. And the cross-referencing was so much more user-friendly. Uh, Comics Vine is is a chaotic mess. Yes, it includes the appearances, but there's no – unless I'm missing a tab somewhere that I don't see. It's hard – yeah, I'm a little passionate here about that. Because uh, doing the research for the show takes me hours and hours and hours, and it just was frustrating as hell. So, yes, missing comic book DB. Sorry, buddy. I, I appreciate the suggestions, but no, nah, it's, it's so hard. All right, then uh, about Hawkwoman, this is – this, or about the Hawks in general. This is funny. you got to stick with it for a bit, okay? This is about Hawkman and Green Arrow. So he says, um, even more than the continuity hell, though, I think the greatest disservice was the personality swap between Shaira and Katar. Being the 1990s, a strong female character meant turning her into Meghan McCain. Well, Katar became the namby-pamby constitution-caressing demon rat or in comic terms prone to boring speechifying. Then this is the part that makes sense when Oliver Queen embraces capital punishment and CIA operations while Hawkman is earning his civil liberties merit badge from the ACLU, you may have given up <laughs> on serving the established characterization. <laughs> you know, I never even thought about that, but you're right. Green Arrow's running around with uh, that guy, Eddie Fry, or whatever his name was on all these CIA things, and, and Hawkman's trying to be all touchy-feely. You're right, they totally reversed those roles. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, then about uh, Highfather, he goes, I actually like." like." Like the Charlton Heston from Ten Commandments on CrossFit, since otherwise (laughs) High Father always came up as Odin, drained of all personality. (laughs) I like that description. That cracks me up. Then he talks about stealth. Remember we talked about that issue, uh, the body horror issue of Legion. He goes, the stealth birth issue was easily one of the acronym Legion's best, and Barry Kitson is a guy I've never had strong feelings about one way or the other. So I'm perfectly happy to have Keith Giffen on a non-5YL entry. Uh, as a character, Stealth should have been one of my favorites on the team, but the dynamics of Alan Grant's scripts were such that just about everybody was just reacting to Vril Dox or Lobo. Everyone else was sort of interchangeable in a Silver Agey kind of way, playing exasperated or indignant straights. As such, and especially in the light of the murder-slash-rape, I'm surprised that Stealth hasn't been quietly killed in a crossover yet. Yeah, I, I am really shocked that Stealth, again, murdered Docs and raped him. I'm really surprised that that hasn't been a little more addressed by how wrong that is. But you make a good point. You know, I, I enjoy the Acronym Legion book. I've been rereading it, but I couldn't put my finger on it. But you're right, everyone is kind of the same, except for Lobo and Drill Docs. So yeah, I, I hadn't realized that. So Frank had a, a bit of insight.
2: Scary. All right? I got a comment from Sydney Sapper Osinga. I believe this is the first time we've heard from Sydney. He says, Hi, I've only found you guys recently, but plan on checking out everything over time. I'm a huge fan of the Who's Who and the Ohatmu and any handbook-type style, handbook type materials. Have you covered the Argyle entry in Son of Ambush Bug number two? Also, Amazing Heroes number one or nine had a list of all the artists and what they did in the original one of Who's Who, as well as an article about minor characters that could have had entries, including the Bouncer and the Crusader. I remember that article because I was buying Amazing Heroes at the time. I loved that article. It was really great. And no, we haven't got Gotten to Argyle yet? I think when we are headed towards the the wrap up of Who's Who, we probably have to do some odds and ends. And I think at some point we will do we'll do Argyle because you know he did get an official Who's Who listing, if it, even though that listing is not in
1: a Who's Who comic. So we've been doing this podcast so long that one of our memories has gone. Did we because- n- did we do that already? Well, here's the thing. We did the – we called it, I think, the victory lap episode or whatever. Right. After we finished Who's Who and we finished the History of the DC Universe or whatever, we did right. a, a victory lap. And I know we talked about the Amazing Heroes article in there. We definitely did. Did we?
2: Okay. Yep. Wow, yeah. It was a long time and, ago. and I know
1: Bouncer and Crusader, Zoom has done entries for them. Yeah, but, that, that is true. But uh, the – let's see. I'm struggling here. We either did Argyle in there. Or we said we were going to and failed to,
2: I think and, that's and Cisco gave us
1: a bunch of crap for it. I, I think can't...
2: that's more – well, Cisco giving us a bunch of crap. I mean how am I supposed to remember that incident? There's so many of them. <laughs>
1: uh, I that any day that ends in one.
2: Yeah, I mean come on. <laughs> I don't think we ever did the listing. Okay. I really don't think we – I think we've talked about it, but I don't think like we've ever done
1: it. We, we quite possibly failed to do it. I know we did cover – The Ambush Bug, issue number three or whatever, which is essentially a big who's who entry for a bunch of uh, characters. That was part of that that wrap-up. Right. So.
2: So. All right. Uh, anyway, Jossum1, uh, he comes back and still says – uh, I still love that name. I was wondering if there's any way to upload some files. I was introduced to the DC Universe in the early 70s by a vinyl record, LP. It had origins of Aquaman and the Golden Age Green Lantern on side one, and on the other side with the origins of both the Jay and Barry Flashes. Not sure if you've ever heard this, but I was able to check down the audio, and I'm sure you'd enjoy them. Thank you, Jossum. Yes, I have, heard, I have that record. Uh, we haven't covered it on Power Records because it's not a Power Record. Uh, it was done. Of a, the the, of the, the, Lion, of the as you mentioned in the late 60s but uh, thank you for the interest but yes we have heard that record and you can find it on youtube as
1: well maybe we should do that for a fire and water aquaman
2: episode we could it's a fun story it's well done I, i've never heard it i'd be interested yeah so
1: uh and then we don't have to talk as much we can just play the record
2: <laughs> <laughs> amazingly the, the the record sleeve it's him flashing green lantern and aquaman gets top billing and the center of the sleeve
1: nice yep. very nice well, I mean think about it. At that point Flash hadn't had a but more than like right. one or two. It was,
2: two was during the episode. right. It was right during Aquaman had his filmation series, so it makes yeah. sense. But it just you know, it just sticks out. You're like,
1: Wow, look at that. <laughs> Uh, then we heard from Thomas Walker, who, uh, who wrote and said uh, he did a Who's Who theme song specifically about 2D Man. Or, I'm sorry, he talks about the Who's Who theme song uh, that our, our friends Bad Man Majamas did and specifically about 2D Man. And he reveals who 2D Man is, at least in his version. He goes, I want to share in my mind canon who 2D is, man, a, a here to though uh, unrevealed Who's Who entry from the awesome theme song. He goes, If 2D Man were a Marvel comic, the title would be The Irredeemable 2D Man after the hero's Alter Ego, the hero's catchphrase, which is, she's hot, is spoken every time 2D man's eyes glances upon a buxom pinup whose bra size happens to mimic his 2D of his name, especially if she's a redhead. No hero can maintain a secret identity forever, Shag. Yours has just been revealed. Yellow dot award, please uh tell you what tom uh thomas walker absolutely congratulations you have won yourself a yellow dot uh basically by doing that just take a highlighter and put a dot of yellow on something please and uh it's, it's contagion season i can't mail you anything but uh thank you that's that's awesome i absolutely love that they from my buddy matt ev uh who says i by the way if you're not part of the fire and water fitness group you should really go just to look at matt ev's posts there i mean that guy's he's a monster He's just a huge, massive guy, he does amazing handstands, just all this cool stuff. Anyway, Matt writes, I basically came here to talk about stealth in Giffen's body horror issue, which is spectacular, almost Vertigo-esque diversion from the Legion usual shenanigans. One of the best issues of the entire series is an incredible showcase of Giffen's art at its most y and Cronenberg-y. But, uh, but others above me have already mentioned most of that, so, um, or er, carry on. Well, all right. Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, you know what? Maybe we're going to have to check out that issue now. Might be interesting. Then we heard from Stella from the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, uh, a Barbara Gordon podcast specifically, our buddy Stella. And she says regarding – because we talked about Barbara Gordon in regard to Suicide Squad last time. She says in the Suicide Squad entry, you mentioned Oracle being pushed towards leadership and asked whether this was just the, the writer coming up with it or something. She says that Babs is being considered for Suicide Squad leadership is not unlikely as there was a story where Oracle stepped in as the leader when the wall, Amanda Waller, was incapacitated. Huh, awesome! Thank you so much, Stella. And as always, we appreciate you listening. I hope you listen with your mom again. And uh, by the way, she signed it sincerely, Stella, one percent owner of the Katana Banana Fruit Stand. <laughs> She's an investor.
2: Yeah, one percent is
1: zero. Still zero. <laughs> All right, folks. Now we are going to do the aforementioned Zooms Who, the Zoom Yukinori Addendum to the Definitive Directory of the DC Universe. And yes, we have a new entry that. We didn't even know existed uh, that just came to us recently was emailed to us, Rob. You want to sort of describe it a little bit?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, this of all the listings of all the characters that I ever wanted to get a who's who listing and we talked about on the show, deserved one and did not get one. This is the number one listing, even among even above Aquaman villains or whatever. It is sugar and spike.
0: Woohoo!
3: I mean, uh, you
2: you you mentioned that on the show many, many, many times. Yes, and I mean, apparently it was a a, a somewhat contentious uh, subject in the offices of the DC Comics because I mean, apparently a lot of people on the staff thought they deserved it, which they do. Oh, wow! They okay. had, I mean, they 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 headlined ninety eight issues of their own series for Pete's sakes, but apparently it was ultimately Dick Giordano's decision, and he just felt that they weren't. Terribly relevant to the DC Universe and and ordered the
1: editors to drop them. Uh, well, so, if, if you think about it too, by the time they would have got to that issue, they were already past yes. – uh, well past Crisis and yes. into the Man of Steel era even. It makes sense they still deserved a listing. It's, okay. it's one of those one things of the, where you're like it makes
2: sense on paper, but they still deserved it. To me, if you – any character that 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 exists in the DC Universe, which they do because they appeared in Showcase number 100, so they're part of the DC Universe – that had their own title for that long, you were part of DC's publishing history and you deserve a Who's Who list. That's, didn't um, –
1: was it Fox and Crow or Fox or, or the something Fox like the Fox that? Fox
2: and the Crow, they – I guess they're technically part of the DC universe because they're part of the same universe of Stanley and his monster, and Stanley and his monster are part of the DC universe but that uh, you know you could argue maybe then you could but you could say they're funny animals the funny animal thing outside of captain carrot is its own sort of separate universe but sugar and spike but anyway zoom finally did this listing of sugar and spike and we'll have it on the website Fire and Water Podcast. Oh, yeah, we com. We will. it does the personal data for both characters it gives their combined history um he, he, it's credited to sheldon mayer and zoom yucanoria i don't I know that Zoom's credit, sometimes he would give himself credit when he drew more of the listing than others. Sometimes he gave himself credit when he simply did the design. I don't see any of Zoom's work here at all in terms of his art style. I think this is all Sheldon Mayer, and he's just giving himself credit by doing the design and the layout. Not that that doesn't deserve it, but I'm just saying I think all this artwork is Sheldon Mayer.
1: Well, keep in mind, Zoom was also an amazing mimic. Yes. I mean there were, there were times where he would mimic another artist yes. and you couldn't even tell right. that he was mimicking him. So it's quite possible any one of these pieces. You know, Maybe he did the heads in the logo. Maybe he did the heads he so. in the, the side. Exactly. I, you know.
2: um, but I love one of the, the – the I love Zoom's – I mean I've run out of superlatives. You know, We both have to talk about how great these listings are. It is, this listing is exactly what I would have wanted in the comic. I mean mm-hmm. it literally – you could just print this out, stick it in your whatever number, 23 I think it was. It would have come around. <laughs> it would have been the same issue as Superman. Um, and, but I love his attention to detail because I love that it mentions for, for Sugar. And it says, base of operations, an, unknown, an unnamed American town. And then when you get to Spike, it says, base of operations, the same Unnamed American town. I love that he stuck the he jammed the word "same" in there. This is again. This is just everything I would have wanted in a listing of Sugar and Spike. It's just joyful. It's beautiful. It and you know, I mean, all these listings come with a little bit of well, more than a little bittersweet quality because we know that our we we've lost our dear friend, and these are these are coming to us from you know we kind of know that there is a finite. Source of these things, although with Zoom, it may not be as finite as as we think. But again, it's just – it's another just amazing piece by our our dear friend.
1: I wasn't familiar with Sugar and Spike – uh, when we started the Who's Who podcast. And since then, I have absolutely fallen in love with them. Um, I think I got you an archive edition of them. Yes. I, I've read uh, some of the digests with them now. We we covered some stories on an episode uh, of one of our shows. I, I absolutely adore these characters. One of their
2: episodes from Video Comics is up on our YouTube page.
1: Yes, yes. And we and we had super fun doing um the, the Legends of Tomorrow adult versions of Sugar and Spike. I
2: even like that take on it yeah. as well.
1: And uh, this entry is so Wonderful! It brings me so much joy. The kids are just adorable. I love the the, the text he's written here, yep. the, describing their relationship, about how she you know she calls him doll boy, and and, and uh, some of this I wonder if he made up like this whole the, he gives them an origin you know which is sort of interesting. I, I don't know if that ever actually happened that way, but he talks about their first meeting, and then in the in the powers of weapons it talks about their great great grandpa Plum, the one who uh, who can speak baby, and we read a story where grandpa yeah, he looks it's like Beach the old Bay. cowboy dude, yeah. Yeah, and then in the in the Surprint, you've got them they, – they have clearly had either a mud fight or a paint fight or something. You can see their handprints all over the wall and over each other, and they're now in trouble. And they've been put in the corner, and they're having to sit in the corner because they're in trouble, but they're holding hands. And uh, it just – I love this thing so much. Yeah, it's
2: gorgeous. It's I mean all, all of his Zoom Zoom pages were fantastic, but this one I would say – I would put this in like my probably top five favorites because it just – I look at it and say, "You could just put this in the comic, and no one would know the difference."
1: Yeah, well, and you—you asked for this one forever, you know. So, you know, this one, Aquaman of Earth Two, TRSAD Whiz Kids—I mean, you—you know—you get some of your your dreams that that happen right there. So, thank you, Zoom, and uh, we sure miss you, buddy. But uh, but seeing things like this just makes us feel closer to you. All right, folks. Well, now we're going to move on, uh, where we do need to thank you guys at home. We need to thank you for sharing the show on your social media. Remember, out on Facebook or Twitter, share it, retweet it, uh, and you'll get on this list. And again, growing the group of us talking about the show, it all comes from you guys helping to share the word. So please, get out there uh, and, and share and retweet. And I know it sounds like we're reading a phone book, but you know what? Everybody on this list helped promote the show. So our thanks to Al Girding, the Aquaman and Aqualad Facebook page. Batman, Huntress, I'm sorry, Batgirl, and Huntress Podcast. Between the Pages, Bill Beer. Canadian Geek, Chris Franklin. Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon. Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics. Craig Carter, Dale Russell. David S. Gutierrez, David Capune. DC Comics Vault, DC OCD Podcast. Dr. Ange, Dr. Pop Culture from the Bowling Green State University. Fan Film Fridays Podcast, Green Lantern HG. Hulk Wiki, Jeffrey Brown. John K. Mulder, Keith G. Baker, Kirby, Con
2: L. Lisa Heisey, hey, my cousin, get well soon, Lisa, Lisa oh. Liz Ann Oswald, Luke Dobb, M. Anthony Gerardo, Max Romero, Michael Kramer, Mike Dynas, Paul Hicks, Rain Tris, 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 Tris Ramsky, sorry, Rain, <laughs> for, Relatively Geeky, Russ Bailey, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Stella from Backworld to Oracle, The Mirror Factory, Tim Price, Tricker Talk, Waiting for Doom Podcast, Willie Arborough, and World Class Nerd.
1: He is a world class nerd, I think so. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think we all people. are, really. We, oh yeah, it's true. Uh, we will post some of these images out on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. So go out there and check out some of the gallery posts. Now, that's that's this issue in the books. It was super fun. But next issue, we've got more coming, folks. It is the new Titans issue. Very exciting. Rob, who else is in it? Uh, the Teen Titans. And the Injustice
2: League. Anarchy. Animal Man. Green Arrow. Catherine Colbert. Millennium. Invasion. <laughs> Nightwing.
1: Ragman,
2: Rex the Wonder Dog, and many more.
1: Awesome! I cannot wait. It's going to be super, super fun. So that's going to do it, folks. Uh, remember how to Facebook, Twitter, share, retweet, communicate with us, leave comments, all that jazz. We will catch up with you. So until next time, who's, who's next? next?
0: Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta Phantom, Stranger, Etrigan, and Rizzi and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle, Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the D.C. Who's who? Aw, man. We forgot Slipknot.
2: Uh, Who the hell are you? I
1: am the Eradicator. The Eradicator.
2: Armstrong, you missed our squash game. Oh, the D-squash ladder.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm sorry, I forgot. It was very rude.
2: So we'll call it a
0: default then. Whatever. Another win for the eradicator!
2: I climbed the D-squash ladder one rung at a time. Today, you were my rung, Armstrong. Don't try to follow me. I have a cab waiting. <laughs>
0: Eradicator!